Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Well, well, well. What a big show I have in store for you today. Three big shows in a row, in fact, as we look back at all the highlights from season one of Life in the Stocks. But if you're new to the show, welcome. Thank you for tuning in. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host. And the podcast is sponsored by two great companies, two friends of mine, two people I do a lot of business with, the first of which is Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey. Now, as well as being a drink, which you can enjoy as a shot or as part of a cocktail or as a mixer, however you want to enjoy it, that's your prerogative. But as well as being an alcoholic beverage, Fireball also put on a big tour every year in the UK, featuring a a nice eclectic bill of punk and ska punk bands. Every year I DJ the tour, I host it, we go out, we have a lot of fun, we drink, we dance. It's a good time. And on Thursday's show, I will be revealing who Fireball's hottest bands for 2019 are. Very exciting times for one group. They're going to get a lot of help starting out in their career from Fireball. They're going to get press. They're going to get gigs. They're going to get equipment. They're going to get all sorts of help and a leg up thanks to Fireball. And they'll also be playing every date on this year's Fireball Tour. So tune in on Thursday to find out who Fireball's hottest band for this year are. If you want to keep up to date with all Fireball Tour information and drinks and you know all kinds of ideas of how to use and enjoy the spirit, then go follow Fireball now on Facebook, Twitter, Twitter and Instagram at Fireball UK. Life in the Stocks is also sponsored by Academy Events, who are the promotions team behind the Fireball Tour and all the live Q&As that I do and loads of other great shows as well. I'm going to tell you about two 
right now for all the punk rock fans out there. First of all, you can see Descendants live in the UK this August on Friday the 2nd of August at the O2 Shepherds Bush Empire and support for that show comes from CJ Ramon, who's a previous guest here on Life in the Stocks and also Pears, one of the great punk rock bands around today. So good. So that's the bill. Descendants, CJ Ramon and Pears on Friday the 2nd of August at the O2 Shepherds Bush Empire with Academy Events. Tickets are on sale now at ticketmaster.co.uk and another tour happening in June. This is a big one as well because I think the last time this band were in the UK was about eight years ago. They don't get over to this side of the pond that often so when they do, it's a cause for celebration and these shows are going to be great. It's the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones with support from the Barstool Preachers as well and they have four shows in June with Academy Events and the dates are as follows. June 27th in Manchester at the O2 Ritz, June 28th in Birmingham at the O2 Institute, June 29th in London at the O2 Kentish Town Forum and finally June 30th in Bristol at the O2 Academy. That is the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones with support from the Barstool Preachers live in the UK and tickets for that one also on sale right now via ticketmaster.co.uk. All right, let's get cracking, shall we, with this monstrous episode. Uh, welcome to episode 97 of Life in the Stocks, or as I like to call it, the best of season one, part one, episodes one to 30. Yeah, snappy title. I know. What I've been doing for the last month is going back through the entire back catalogue of Life in the Stocks episodes, listening to them in full and pulling out three to five minute highlights from each one. And then I've taken all of those and compiled them into the massive montage that you're about to hear. And yes, that was as laborious and tedious a task as it sounds, but it was also quite a fun trip for me to go back down memory lane and relive all the interviews that I've done for the show and also be reminded of the uh, the scenarios that were going on in my life around these interviews. A lot of stuff came flooding back, good memories, bad memories, everything in between. It was almost like reliving the last two years of my life on tape. And it was quite the trip and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed going down memory lane and hopefully you'll enjoy this montage that you're about to hear and hopefully you'll be inspired to go back and check out some of the episodes that maybe you missed or overlooked the first time around or perhaps you might just go and revisit and re-listen to an episode that you've already heard but you like so much you want to hear it again uh, that's the hope anyway so I'm going to read out a list now of all the guests that you're about to hear from you'll also find this list in the episode description wherever you get your podcasts if you just click on show notes you'll find the full list there as well so when it gets to the end and you cross-reference who you want to go back and check out you can just refer to that list and you're all set but here you go i'll read off the list now i've left off two guests from the first 30 episodes as well they were frank iero from my chemical romance and also kyle gas from tenacious d nothing against those two i really enjoyed doing those interviews and they came out well in one sense but the sound quality of both of those is shit I'm going to be honest, and that's why I've left them off. And the reason they were shit is because they were the first two that I did, and I was still getting to grips with the equipment, and I didn't quite know yet how to utilize it to the best of its ability. So I've left those off for that reason, and there will be some inconsistencies 
with the quality of the audio in the 30 well the 28 episodes that you'll be hearing from now as well because it was early days and like everything you have to start somewhere and i was still finding my feet not just with the technical side of things but also with the format and trying to find a quiet space to talk to someone for an hour often it's with musicians who are on tour and you're either in dressing rooms whilst there's sound checks and rehearsals going on or you're in the band's tour bus or van or vehicle and there's you know background noise and traffic outside so there's a bit of a you know an, an up and down quality to some of the audio in this in this installment of the best of life in the stocks but as we go through into the later episodes then the uh, the quality will improve and the consistency will remain but you know you've got to start somewhere haven't you and it was nice for me to go back and hear these episodes so I do hope you enjoy reliving them with me as well. Here we go. Here's who we have on the Best of Life in the Stocks, Season 1, Part 1. Steve-O from Jackass, Albar from Dropkick Murphys, Laurie Jane Grace from Against Me, Jesse Leach from Killswitch Engage, Nick Oliveri from Queens of the Stone Age, Tommy Victor from Prong, Joel O'Keefe from Airborne, John Lydon from the Sex Pistols. That was a particularly significant episode for me absolute hero of mine and i can't believe i got him on so early in the show's life as well episode 10 was amazing um brian fallon from the gaslight anthem you'll also be hearing from him matt cotron from the bronx roger lima from less than jake pauline black from the selector clem burke from blondie steve diggle from buzzcocks sean Ryder from happy mondays alan mcgee from creation records jesse malin solo artist ryan hamilton solo artist charlie star from blackberry smoke warren haynes from the allman brothers and the grateful dead michael Monroe from Hanoi Rocks and also a solo artist, the legendary comedian Tom Green, which definitely ranks on one of my top five episodes to date. So good. Really enjoyed that one. Um, Alice Lowe, actor, writer and director. Lovely lady as well. Joey Cape from Lagwagon. Kelly Jones from Stereophonics. Lee Dayton from Dirty Sanchez. Dave Haas from The Loved Ones, also a solo artist. And finally, Frank Turner, solo artist. That's who you're going to be hearing from. Without further ado, Let's get into the best of season one of Life in the Stocks, part one, episodes one to 30. I hope you enjoy all of them, and um, I'll see you again at the end for a quick recap. don't mind going into it at what point did it stop being fun like the sessioning and the drinking and the, uh, the I thought I was having fun right up until the very end really I mean fun might not be the word for it but like once the voices started talking to me once I was like hearing the voices and, and watching the people walk around my apartment who had never actually been there all the hallucinations all the voices all, I was just like connected to the spirit world, you know, and like, I just wanted to keep that happening. You know, I, I fucking really. You did. You enjoyed that. I was peeking behind the curtain. I was peeking behind the curtain, you know, of uh, other dimension, fucking spirit shit, and um, that was a big deal, man. I mean, I, I still fucking reflect on that, and, and it's amazing, man. Like, um, 
I, I loved all that. And, uh, fuck, I just love drugs. I Man, I would love to be on drugs right now. But the problem is that, um, you know, like, it just came to a point where my actions were uh, not acceptable, not by me or anybody else, you know? Like, it was really... <clears throat> it was impossible for me to get through any given day without, like, really disrupting someone's life. Right. <laughs> you know, like, mine or someone else. Like, I, I just became... Uh, at times, terribly mean-spirited, and would just really just think it was a great idea to uh, to, to just do really shitty things to people, you know. And um, I would just it was if it wasn't like uh, shit that I did that was uh, brought about like there's just like you know my food groups became shame, guilt, remorse, yeah. humiliation. You know, repeat like that. Repeat, yeah, exactly. That was like it was just like, oh my god, every day there's some fucking thing I did that made me feel so guilty because I had harmed another person, or so fucking humiliated because I had just fucking embarrassed myself so terribly and publicly. Um, and, and I mean, for me to say I was embarrassed, like, like, uh, you know, I was doing fucking shitty stuff, man. You know, I was, I was humiliated, I was ashamed, I was just fucking racked with guilt. And that was, uh, my self-esteem is just so low. And, and, and then you're right, repeat, the only way, you know. And uh, it just, and, and I was just killing myself, man. I was fucking killing myself. And I was burning every bridge in my career. Like, I had good things going for me, and I just fucking ruined everything. And uh, it just really, I went into free fall mode. So there was no way to continue what I was doing, man. There, there really wasn't. Like, if I tried to... I mean, it's, I think it's kind of cliche and, and lame to be like, oh, I would I would have died, you know, but uh, <clears throat> but it wouldn't be fucking surprising, man. I was like, uh, over the years, I have um, really fucked over more people than than most on the celebrity death pool. <laughs> I've been the most like. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, like the odds-on favorite in, in the, the death pool community and has really cost people money. Thank God for Knoxville, right? I mean, are you and him close friends? It seems like he was there for you when not no one else was, but he, he made that tough decision, right, that uh, yeah, the best friends deal, make. Man. It was a big deal. And and uh, I love the guy, man. I fucking love him. And, and uh, he's really, like, I, I refer to him as the captain, you know? And that's beyond just the cast and the, the skits and... Right, like I genuinely believe, and I can't even say with certainty like what the situation was, but the money was a joke from the beginning. And when and when when the first movie deal came around, um, they offered us like a, you know an amount of money that we totally were excited about, but not realizing that it was a fucking joke, you know. And from what I understand, um, I think Jeff Tremaine would have been perfectly happy to uh, be like, "Hey, dude, they're fucking stoked." You know, they're, they're, they're stoked. They'll take it. Give it to him. And I think Knoxville really put his foot down and said, no, like, uh, I'm just not going to fucking see it in front of a camera for this project unless uh, we take care of the of the cast, you know, all the guys with some, some back-end percentage, you know, some profit participation in the back-end. And, I mean, they didn't give us, like, like, you know, considering there's a bunch of us, I think that we really did well. But I just, like, that's something that, that I, I understand happened. And, uh, and it's characteristic of Knoxville.
I think you guys have always bled 200% of your heart and soul into every album. I don't think you're a band that reaches in the air for topics to sing about and kind of, you know, just goes at a very broad subject and attacks it with a, you know, a half-cocked gun. I think you guys always go all in. And um, this one particularly feels very personal, very present. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the themes, the lyrical subjects within the record. Maybe yeah. um, perhaps a song which to you might be a very personal, significant track. Well, I mean, you know, there's just this, this is an incredible opioid and heroin problem in New England right now. And um, we've lost so many friends and family and, and um, to, to, to drug overdoses. Um, it's just, it's, 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 it's astounding. I mean, it's literally... I mean, I mean, since just since we've been here, um, Kenny's lost another family member um, to an overdose. And it's like it's we it is everywhere in, in America right now. But New England, I mean, the state I live in, New Hampshire, which is an hour, an hour north of, of, of Boston. Um, I mean, we're number one in the country for overdoses. We have a million three hundred thousand people. I mean, I mean, so like we're talking per capita. Like I'm saying that like literally every single person I know knows somebody who's either overdosed, died, or knows somebody who's overdosed and died or died rather. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's insane. So, you know, I mean, songs like, you know, Dead End Kids. I mean, the reason why we did Walk Alone, You'll Never Walk Alone. Um, all these things are to, you know, are, are we're, we're talking about. You know, we're talking about, you know, the, uh, you know, even paying my way, you know, we're talking about the redemption of, you know, somebody who was, you know, who fell through the cracks, you know what I mean? I mean, societies, I mean, the drug companies, the big pharma companies, they're stepping over bodies to cash their checks, man. They don't give a fuck, you know what I mean? They're like, you know, they're, they're, they're writing doctors checks to, to push these drugs on their patients. And there's no, you know, you, you, you take a kid in high school who's blown his knee out playing football and you give him, you know, 60 Oxycontin and he's in unbelievable pain, so he's taking it. And then at the end of his cycle, he's like feeling like he still needs it, but he doesn't have another prescription to it. So he goes on the street for it, you know what I mean? And it's fucking 80 to $100 a pill. Well, check it out, man. $15, $20 gets you a bag of dope, you know? And now they're fucking cutting it with fentanyl. Now, fentanyl is what they use in hospitals to put you under during an operation. So um, that is 100 times stronger than heroin. Um, my brother-in-law, two years ago, died from a heroin overdose. Um, my sister was the one who found him. And she didn't even know he was fucking, he was doing it, you know. Um, and when she opened the door and he fell in her arms, the needle was still on the floor. And it was full still. And he had literally just hit a tiny little bit in, and the, just that little bit of fentanyl killed him immediately. I mean, I just found out that's what killed Prince. He, he had a Vicodin prescription and there are people taking um, opioids and they're, they're basically pressing them to look like what, so you think you're getting a Percocet or, or a Vicodin, say, if you're somebody who's just a pill popper like that and you're, oh, it's 10, 20, 30 milligrams of this. No, actually, it's fentanyl and boom, he, he thought he was taking Vicodin and it killed him. You know, um, it's crazy, man. It's it's really, really scary. And uh, so the pain is definitely, you know, that's reflected in the in, in the, the pain part of the, the title of the album. You know, that's, 
you know, there's been a lot of that. There's been a lot of, of heartache, um, you know, that's touched us all. Um, now, and your community as well, right? And in yeah, a well, deep, that's what, widespread know, way. That's what I mean. It's like, you know, I mean, you take a kid, you take a kid that's, you know, I mean, dead end kids is a perfect example. You take someone who's got no hope in their life. You know what I mean? Your parents are sick. Of you, you, you leave, you leave home. You got nothing. You, you, you got no job. You got no future. You don't see that you have any future and you've got, you got, you got no money. And here's this fucking drug that comes along that makes you feel like fucking, you know, a rock star that makes you feel like you could fucking do anything. You're not going anywhere, but it makes you feel that way. Now, how are you going to tip the scales so that kid doesn't want to do that with what I just put out for you? So you got nothing in your life. You got, a sh maybe you're working a shit job. Maybe you're living in a, in a town that you know, doesn't even have a public transportation. You know what I mean? It's an old mill town run down. There's nothing going on. You've got nothing. How do you take someone who's done heroin that makes them feel like a rock star and go, no, 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 you shouldn't do heroin, man, because it's going to kill you. You should just live in your shitty town and have your shitty life. It's what I'm trying to say is how yeah, do you, yeah. how do you, the problem, the challenge get to the root is, of the problem. How do you get yeah. through to people? How do you make them care enough to save their own lives? You know what I mean? I mean, I've got a, I've got a friend who's uh, head of an emergency room. She works the night shift at an emergency room. And she told me literally that she sees the same people coming in every single week and they save their lives. They send them out. And they're back again, overdosed again, you know, and they don't always save them, you know what I mean? And now all the police officers and first responders have Narcan, you know what I mean? They can, sh they can, they can hit you with this, with this Narcan pen and, 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 it, and, it, and it's, and if you're having an overdose, it, it, it will save your life basically, but it also cancels out the effect of the drug. So I had a, I had a friend of mine who's a cop tell me the guy the guy came out of his freaking out of dying and started trying to strangle the cop because he was like you just fucked my high up man no actually I just saved your life kid but they don't care I mean that's what this fucking shit does to people you know what I mean like they care more about the high than their own lives it's like zombies but you know a song like Dead End Kids is talking about how there is a soul and there's a heart in there and you can't just write these people off, you know, we've got to do something, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, there's got to be hope. So, you know, um, we're, uh, you know, we're hoping to, at the same time that we, you know, having conversations about this, we maybe bring awareness to it, but also living by example, um, showing people that, you know, that you can, you can recover from an addiction and you don't need to fucking, you know, you don't need to die. You know what I mean? And you don't need to, uh, you don't need that shit in your life. And, and uh, it's really, uh, it's really infuriating when I think about our political system back home and how the lobbyists are just able to kind of run roughshod over the politicians and that there's just nothing, you don't see anything changing. You know what I mean? You don't see, and if it is changing, it's not changing enough because it's, there isn't enough being done.
um, I wondered if you could just sort of explain, first of all, what happened and sure. and how that left certain uh, feelings inside you that you then had to get out right. through music, ultimately. Well, you know, this was like, I was 14 years old, and it was like maybe two years into me discovering punk rock, right? And I was really like, at first, into the nihilism of punk rock, like the live fast, die young thing, wanted to be Sid Vicious, whatever, because I really didn't see a future. I didn't think I'd ever escape South Florida. I just thought I'd be dead by the time I was like, you know, early 20s or something like that. Um, and I had already just like, I had previously, maybe a month or two before, gotten arrested for like having some seed, marijuana seeds and stems in my wallet that I got busted with, and it was on school grounds, which meant it was a felony automatically. So I already had that. Um, that charge against me, but it was the 4th of July in Naples, Florida and 4th of July They do the fireworks celebration at the beach And there's like these little boardwalk pathways that connect the street onto the actual sand at the beach And you got to walk over them to get on there So 4th of July again, there's like there's thousands of people there at the beach and I was going down there to meet some friends Walked up onto the boardwalk was looking to see if I could spot any of them And there are two police officers there and one cop is like hey get off the boardwalk so I turned around and I got off the boardwalk, walked to the end of it, back towards the street. Cop comes up to me again and he's like, get off the boardwalk. And I'm like, I'm off the boardwalk, you know, and I immediately started to argue the point because I was off the boardwalk. And it was like, you know, maybe a second into talking, grabs me, drags me over to the car, slams me down onto the car, kicks my leg apart, legs apart. And it's like, you know, July, so Florida sun baking on the on the car all day long. It was hot. So I like trying to push up off the car, start slamming my head into the car. I like got lippy at that point and started saying whatever. They handcuffed me, throw me in the back of the cop car. I spit on the cop at one point when he was like yelling at me through the window. Then they take me out of the car for some reason. And like when they took me out, they grabbed me by the by the uh, inner elbows or whatever. And it was like all the pressure then was on my wrists, which were cuffed behind my back. And I kind of like kicked my legs out. More cops had showed up at this point. They grabbed my feet, brought me around the other side of the cop car in the center of the street, threw me face first down onto the pavement. One cop puts like a knee in his back, one with a boot on my head, and they hogtied me, tied my ankles to my wrist, and then they're carrying me around like a fucking suitcase. <laughs> and uh, threw me into the back of the car and took me down to jail and charged me with resisting arrest with violence and battery on an officer, both felony charges, and they charged me as an adult. So... You know, it was really my first experience where, you know, I was I was in the wrong when I got arrested for the weed, you know, or the, the seeds and stems. It was a dumb mistake, but like legitimately I had seeds and stems and I was on school grounds and I was caught. And this to me was different in that like I hadn't done anything. I was off the boardwalk. I complied with the officer and it was really like blatant harassment to me and I could tell that I was being targeted just because of the way I looked because I was a young punk kid yeah punk kid yeah, yeah you know with like spiky hair and a safety pin through my ear or whatever um and so it was eye-opening then and seeing you know like everything that happened afterwards I I, I would spend a summer on house arrest couldn't leave my house was eventually convicted given 180 hours of community service and because of all this too, you know, I had to sober up because I was then receiving regular drug, drug testing. Um, so I had a lot of time to think, but um, still into punk rock then, you know, but really in a different way of where, where it became more about the politics and it became more about the social justice issues. And, and that was what appealed to me then. And, and just like, it was an eye-opening experience that really politicized me. Do you were young and you wanted to 
Your mental health, Jesse, I don't want to pry into areas where you oh, don't want to discuss. Um, my mum, uh, she's been well for about 10 years now, but growing up she had severe manic depression, which is obviously a very specific form of it. Yeah. And, you know, she'd go on flights of total mania. And it was rough and it was hard, but there's so many different forms of it and it affects people in such different ways. And I think the hard thing for me growing up in a sort of suburban white picket fence, everyone knows everyone's business, gossipy environment, we were sort of like blacklisted in our community, you mm. know, because I had a crazy mum. And I feel like now the dialogue is a lot more open and there's a lot of, uh, you know, leaps and bounds being made in many ways. But the flip side, I think, is that actually it's more rife now than it's ever been. Hmm. What are your personal experiences with it? Where did you think it sort of began in your life? Has it always been there? And how does it manifest itself? Yeah, it runs in my family. My grandfather was manic. Um, probably, it often does run in the family. Probably even bipolar. I don't know if he was diagnosed properly, but... I remember him, you know, he would get on a high and he'd be the king of the world, you know. Um, he was a water skier. Uh, it was like his passion. So when he was on a high, he would put my grandmother's spring dress on and go water skiing and do crazy stuff and make people laugh and just be this amazing, like, figure that everyone was drawn to. And then he would just disappear for weeks. And I remember going and just seeing him laying in his bed watching TV and just not even really responsive would barely even acknowledge that you were in the room like dark so I know it runs in my family I'm pretty sure um, and my, my sister also suffers from it we've got thankfully a more mild case of it and I used to have it worse but through therapy and through natural medications and through exercise and just having more tools to build upon to try to help come out of it as I feel it starting to come down on me when I can sense it coming which is not always um, I've had a better handle on it but for me I think the big thing was talking about it when I started to like let people know on a very public level on my Instagram and my Twitter to open that dialogue up I've had conversations with fans and friends because of it and I feel like the more you know, you're able to help yourself a bit through therapy. It's almost like um, sometimes I can tell when I'm getting anxious or I get angry or I have mood swings. It's like I feel like it's coming, like I'm going to slide into a dark place. So I reach out to people and I actually ask for help or medicate. Um, I think having that dialogue is the reason why I'm able to function a lot better than I used to you know I haven't had a suicidal thought in a long time and when I was younger it used to happen a lot and it's not something that you really can explain to somebody who doesn't know what it's like because um, I think that there's also still a stigma attached to mental illness definitely yeah where people tend to sort of make fun of other people or try to condescend or you know, um, think that they do know what it's like when everybody's different, you know. Some people, yeah, you can visibly look at someone and go, wow, they look depressed. Where other people can be pretty highly functioning and you'd never know it, that they have a hard time sleeping at night and have bouts of crying and, like, feel suicidal or whatever. So for me, it's just been keeping that dialogue open 
I'm almost I almost wear it as a badge of pride because I know it helps people. So I talk about it as much as I comfortably can. Playing five bands, and um, and I still come out and do acoustic because I love it, and it helps me to get my my rent paid. I've been in the Queens of Stonies for thirteen years, so it's uh, I did once upon a time, I made some some money playing music, you know, and it was like, well, I can honestly say I did it once, and on a level of like, well, I look back at some of the things I I appreciated then, but didn't quite grasp like. This is going to end real soon, dude. You better remember what's going on here. Because you obviously I, I, didn't foresee that at all. I didn't did foresee you? what happened as far as like uh, getting getting uh, cut out of, of uh, something that was that was half mine, and and, and I and I signed away, I signed it away, which I didn't have to do. I mean, I did I did not legally. I mean, but I don't care. It's not one of those things like I'm not a. I read a quote from you earlier. I don't want to interrupt you. Sorry, but I read a quote from you earlier which said that all the lawsuits and the legal side, all that stuff kills music. That's not what it's about. That ain't what I play for. I, I, I don't care about... You know, I was never fighting for the name. I, I, I made some mistakes and, and signed over things like, you know, everything. You know, I had half of the merch on the website and all that shit. I was like, you don't want to play with me? Signed it all away. Not knowing exactly what I was signing away, but all the gear we bought half of together... It's all his, and, and you know I've got to use his studio a few times. Like it isn't like it's all gone, you know. I, it, it belongs to him now, and then uh, I got no room for a monitor desk in my van. I'm traveling in. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the way you got to look at it, right? You know what I mean? Like you know, at least his the the name of, that I helped to build. I believe we I helped to build this name with him. It was worth nothing when when I started playing with him, and and we made it worth something because we cared about it. Not just him, but I, 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 I cared about it. And I still care about it to the sense where I don't want him to stop doing it. And I don't want the name to, to die out. I, I get bummed out on some of the moves that have been made by some of the players involved since I've been gone. Like their choice of who they'll play with and, and, and will tie in with, with that name. Because I, I, I really believe in the name and... and um, and I believe in uh, the band. I, I have recordings of, from every session we ever did. That parts never got used, vocals never used, lyrics never got used. That I could have bootlegged a hundred times over. But I, I always stayed true to, to to my army, you know, and and, and my friends. And um, regardless to whatever beefs we've had in the past, is is regardless that that aside, that's irrelevant to me when it comes to to um, the reputation of that. Yeah. Thing, I mean, you know, maybe I bum them out with some of the things I do. I don't know. I, they've never really said anything to me. Yeah, about they that. said if you hang out with that guy Matt Stocks again backstage said, hey, in Birmingham, dude, that's it. It's over. 
you think about what happened to Phil? I assume you saw all of that um, when he came out of the Dime Bash. I think it's a great thing because now, I mean, he, he's got he's cleaning up his act from what I heard, and uh, you know, uh, you know, it's good to have if, whatever opinions people have on the inside. I mean, there's, there's no reason. I mean, that goes from the left side too. I mean, like yeah, people. Yeah. You know, people need to keep their mouths shut in today's era and uh, have the ability to do that and, and be cautious of other people's feelings and sensitive to other people's, uh, uh, you know, uh, backgrounds, other people's uh, feelings about things. I mean, you, you can't just uh, be that egotistical to shoot your mouth off all the time and... Uh, uh, you know, I think the, the world is moving in a better place of tolerance, and we need to like continue with that. And uh, I think the backlash against them has has been a wake up call for them. What do you think it means for the future of alternative music, rock and roll music, uh, a form of music which traditionally is about being outwardly spoken, expressive, contradictory, controversial? What do you think that means for the future for young bands coming up? Well, it's a challenge for them to 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 become more articulate and uh, uh, find ways of, of, of creating uh, lyrics and, and uh, ideas that, uh, that are more world conscious in a way. So uh, it, it's, I think that the world is moving away from you know, what our opinions are and how, how, how important they are into a more a, 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 a group consciousness. So... Uh, you know, and I'm being artistical saying that too because I mean, Prong's lyrics have definitely developed into that as well. You know, with that in mind, and, and I just think we have to be sensitive and and uh, and move forward. I mean, we can't rely on on uh, you know the the never mind the bollocks attitude anymore. It's things change, and uh, you know, in a nostalgic sense, that's fine. But otherwise, uh, you know, it's a different world now. Tell me about Al, what you've learned from someone like him, I guess as much personally as professionally, because he's lived a life, right? He's seen and done just about everything there is to see and do and experience and feel. And I think that's what you would think, but, uh, I, you know, I think, uh, I, I don't think that's true. Okay. Uh, I think Al has, still has a lot of growing up to do. Uh, you know, he would probably lose his mind if he heard that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's uh, he comes from that old school who think that, you know, it's, you know, as soon as you got some success that you know it all and that you're, you're like, you know, this authority on all subjects, etc. Right. which just isn't the case. It's impossible. That's just insanity. You know, it's like, I think as you grow older, the, the less you realize, you know, and the, the, the more that you're. You're, uh, you feel like entrusting to others. So, uh, you know, Al is an extremely, unbelievably intelligent guy who uses it for his own benefit. And, like, uh, his tastes are definitively classic and fantastic. And his knowledge of sports, and uh, he's, a, he's, he's a great social guy to hang out with. He's a lot of fun. You know, uh, when it goes into the business side of things, you know, uh, although he, he waves this... this uh, you know, a uh, socialist flag around. He's like probably one of the, like, the biggest capitalists I've ever like worked with, like ever. How does someone like that balance a professional business mind with? Well, I think he's the done madness. It. He did it in the old school way of of making it appear that he was that big into drugs or something in order because. 
that was what was cool. That back Hunter then. S. Thompson style. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's part of your it's part of your rebellious persona of being anti-establishment, and that's as dead as thank God, thank the universe that 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 mentality is is been driven away from you know since society because it's terrible. But it needed things needed to go through that in order for people to realize what a hunk of dog shit it was. So it's like uh, I think he still holds on to that a little bit, and you know, I mean, there needs to be Al Jorgensen's around. I mean, you know, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, in a certain sense of the word, I mean, he's almost a martyr for that whole thing. But uh, I, it's impossible for somebody to stay alive if if the the. Uh, amount of, of self-abuse that it, pe- the uh, populace believes that he indulges it to be true. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I know he did it, and he'll, he'll keep, and he keeps resorting to that, like, you know, he wears it like a badge, and it's like, I, I personally, I don't really care, you know, it's like, I mean, if, if, if I, uh, you know, I keep things secretive, I, I wouldn't throw that around as something to be proud of. Yeah, we get this gig, and we go, right, well, we've seen enough videos of, of, of um, Iron Maiden and, and ACDC Metallica at Donington. Um, we need to get some more amps. So we hired every single amp we could virtually in Australia, every Marshall. We hit up, uh, they came from New South Wales, Queensland, uh, came from Northern <laughs> Territory. Uh, they might have even come from WA. And we got two full-size mega splitter vans full of um, all these marshals, everything. And uh, we didn't even know how to plug them in. Um, <laughs> uh, we didn't never seen that many in yeah, our yeah, life. Yeah. So we hired them all in. Uh, we basically just burnt our entire fee on the hire for the gear. And then when we, we, we rocked up to the venue really early, you know, keen, because they said, like, this is your loading time, it's 9 a.m. So we got in, and, um, and then the local loaders there were all wearing, like, you know, one had, like, a Kiss shirt on, like Kiss local crew and ACDC local crew, and I thought that was really cool, like just seeing that shirts like that. And then um, the, the the chief loader like goes, "All right, you su- support band A is yet right? So where's your where's your station wagon?" And we went, "Oh no, nah. we, we we got we got this van here." And he goes, "What do you need? What's in that van?" <laughs> and then we went, "Oh no, this is not the only van." And then the other van comes in. <laughs> he goes, "What?" And he goes. <laughs> Start pulling out like all these marshals come out like a ridiculous amount, and then he um and he goes, oh this is unbelievable. The last time we loaded this amount of marshals was for ACDC when they played here in bloody two thousand and five. That's it, right? Yeah, job done. Yeah, and we went, yeah, like that's what we were like. We were like, yeah, well, yeah, that's what that's what you use, isn't that's it? How it should be. Yeah. So, <laughs> He was just like, he kind of, I think he just shook his head and laughed. Yeah. And then he goes, well, you, you better bloody help then. We, yeah, yeah, we'll help. So we, we got it all up on stage and, and, um, and the core crew, you know, the, the, the uh, stage manager for, for the Stones, he said, look, guys, um, you've got a lot of gear here and um, <laughs> I 
I'm not going to tell you no because I think it's funny and you know it's great. Whatever, it's all rock and roll. But just don't, don't go backstage. Don't go here. Don't touch this. And we we're like, yeah, no, no, worries. it's it's your house, mate. We've taken our shoes off at the door. Like we respect, and we just I can so happy to be here, and that you let us have all this shit up here. And they were, you know we got it all up, loaded up on stage, and, and um, I've never lift that many marshals in one day in my life, and. Um, <laughs> So we got them all up, and then we plugged them all in with Boss tuner pedals and whatever else we could find. So it was this humongous buzz. Um, I think, yeah, I don't know how we got rid of that. Oh yeah, so we snapped all the earth pins off all the off all the uh, off all the ca- off all the power cables, which is illegal. You shouldn't do that because it's basically that's just it's live wire. Live right? wire. Yeah. So that was the only way to get rid of the hum. So we went along with um, a pair of pliers and snapped all the earth pins off about um, sixteen or whatever it was. Um, uh, power heads and then um, plugged them all back in the hum went away and it was just kind of like just don't drink near your amps and spill anything so <laughs> so anyway we did that and then this was not you know we had nothing to do so we actually brought our swags now a swag is a sleeping bag with a mattress in it it's, a, it's an Australian bush sleeping thing it's basically a one man tent right and we set them up in our band room. They, they gave us a band room. We were like, wow, we've got a band room. We've never had a band room before. And then, um, so we... Because you got on site so early, right? Yeah. You wanted a nap before you played. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've been up, you know, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. we, we, we like, stay what, up late. four or five a.m.? Yeah. yeah. So, um, so we set up our... They gave us this huge function room. We were so big. And then we're like, we used to band rooms that are, that's the toilet, you know? Yeah. The public Literally, toilet. Yeah. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so we set up our Australian bush swags. I'm just trying to explain it like that no, so people no, get the idea. It's perfect. We got four swags on the floor and we have a, we have a nap. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> we're all about naps. No like, hookers and blow. No, just... <laughs> no, no, just just naps. And, but again, um, it goes back to that same thing from day one of yeah. wanting to We wanted to be rested for the gig. You could, yeah. the, best, the best gig we could. We never played on a stage this big or a show this big or with and a band. you knew of you anywhere. might never again, right? Yeah. That's the other thing is... Yep. There's and, no record deal on the table at that time, mm-hmm. right? So it was no record deal, yeah. no, no nothing. And um, so I remember, you know, I remember waking up, going, "Oh shit, did we miss stage time?" <laughs> and I'd only it was it was fine. I was like three in the afternoon or something, yeah, yeah. four in the afternoon. And I'd never seen catering in my life. And I remember I, wa- I walked through this. I heard these people, a lot of people, you know. And I opened up the sliding door a big sliding curtain thing and I walked in and there was just there was just tables and tables of hot food cold food I think there was like an ice thing you know like a <laughs> uh, what do you call it an ice sculpture and wow yeah like it was full on and I remember going what the hell is this and then I, remember I just said I said to someone hey I'm I'm really hungry do you, do you think I could have some some food. Go, yeah, yeah. You got your you got your pass. Because they're British, all yeah. British. You got your pass, and then I was like, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, great. So I had um, there was lots of American food. Well, I didn't know it was American food till later. But I didn't know what Oreo, uh, Oreos were or or Cheetos and all these things. And and I just I just had a bit of this and a bit of that. And I was like, wow, you know, this is great. I I think I only really had some biscuits and some cereal. I just was too nervous to go near the all the all the the good stuff. And then, um, so then, yeah, uh, that was my first experience of real live catering. And then before the show, um, at this point, how nervous are you? Um, nervous, nervous, but 
just aggressing, aggressively wanting to do the best. Kind of nerves had gone to the point where it was just I was really anxious, really like a like a dog that's been starved. And hungry, was, yeah, yeah, really hungry. Yeah, nervous as well, but two conflicting things to, to you know one going against the other sort of cancels the other out, and then. And then it was uh, so yeah, did catering. Went for a walk, and then I ended up walking through where, where the Stones dressing room wing was, and uh, I walked through this um, around this corner, and it said something. Oh, I can't remember what it said on a sign. It was like some name for a pub or a club or something, and black curtains. And I opened up these curtains, and there was like some sort of music playing, and there was like sort of like some really vibey lights and lamps and fairy light things, and just and another curtain went through another curtain around a corner and another curtain and I peer through this curtain and there's a full pool table there's like must have been a pinball machine there was a jukebox and all this other stuff it was like and there and it was it was uh, Ronnie Wood and Keith Richards playing pool wow and I'm looking through the curtain just oh my god and I'm going if one of them sees me, they're going to stab me or something. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. Like, I'm just so nervous. Because you weren't meant to be in there, right? No, and it's, it's rock and <laughs> roll. Like, like, thinking, I have to. I thinking, have to look. Yeah, thinking back, they might have said, oh, fancy game of pool. Yeah. They probably would have invited me in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, um, you know, they're such humble and awesome blokes. And I just, as a kid, growing up listening to the Rolling Stones and then seeing them playing pool and having a laugh. Keith had a... Um, well, I, th I guess I thought it was orange juice at the time, but it was—it's obviously a vodka and orange juice when I think back. And I can't remember what Ronnie was drinking. He might have been having a beer or a wine or something. But they were both just like laughing, hanging out like they were in a pub. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So then I, I, I walk back to our band room and go, oh, I can't believe what I've just seen, you know. And this is real. They're here. We're playing with the Stones. Like it hadn't hit me. Mm -hmm. That's probably why I wasn't nervous. Because your mind's on a million things. Yeah. Yeah. And then anyway, we we get up and we we do the gig. We get up, we get the amps on, we go, we go charging out there, and we open, we stand up for rock and roll, and you know it's rough and ready, it's loud, and it's mental. And I remember how big the stadium was, this big black hole. And then when the lights come on, you see the people, and when it goes off, you sort of can't really see them. And then um, I remember thinking, is there anyone out there? And then the lights came on after the first song, and everyone was in there clapping, and I was like, oh wow, can't believe we're sort of winning him over. So um, and then we did the gig, and then. We played our asses off and just played as hard as we could and, and just gave them the best show we could. And we came off on time. And the, the same crew that, you know, that said, you know, get, get you know, put your stuff up on stage, don't break anything, don't touch anything, just, you know, this is where you... Who are these chances? Yeah. That's their initial impression, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. And so we come off walking down the steps. I remember walking down these steps and it was just a big fluorescent light lit backstage loading dock with all the Rolling Stones crew that were there clapping saying best fucking band to support the Stones in 15 years lads that's fucking great don't worry about your amps we got it
What do you think of a phrase, there is no such thing as bad publicity? I think it's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely not true. It, I've used it, comes I've used cost, it right? myself sometimes just to sling it back, you know. Um, of course, there's bad publicity. When it's spiteful about uh, your family and your friends and your background and your upbringing, then you have to stand up and face that because that's challenging reality. So, yeah, there is such a thing as bad publicity and the, the British media is absolutely stuck solid in bad publicity. It's, it's almost spiteful and vindictive and jealous of um, what they perceive as success in others. Is that part of the reason why you moved to America? Because there seems to be a cultural difference for me in that they don't try well, and yeah, tear it, people down as much Well, yeah, indirectly, that bad and negative press led to uh, police harassment, endless police raids. And it was impossible for me to function here anymore. I knew sooner or later, you know, you're fearful of this. Planting might come in as a philosophy adopted by them. In fact, some of the police officers actually told me they were considering that, you know, as a warning sign. And so uh, as a band at the time, uh, Public Image, we couldn't get any gigs here. We were banned everywhere, all local councils and town halls would be up against us so uh well we just upped our bags and and moved to uh, new york and uh struggled there but struggled in a much more healthier environment and mm -hmm. um, public you image know, the lyrics in that song could we talk about that that's one of my favorites for you that was obviously a moment of uh re redefining yeah who, I was. who you were yeah. um and making it clear to to, to the peoples of the world. This is the public image limited, not the over-exaggeration that the Sex Pistols turned into. They were turning us into some fiasco rock band who was just doing this all as like a, the ultimate giggle. No, I, I just stand by every one of those words. This is vitally important to me. This is my first opportunity in life to tell it like it is from my point of view. Would you think I was going to throw that away in Silly Billy? No. No, no, no. All the institutions and religions and powers that be that tried to rubbish my life up to that point, I thought deserved a response. And that was it. And that was it. And I don't ever see any possibility of, of uh, uh, a Sex Pistols album part two because I've dealt with that side. Uh -huh. So I had the opportunity, sad as it was that the Pistols fell apart, to uh, reform myself and... Uh, and I went into a completely different frame of mind. Self-analysis, really. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and exploring different musical terrains and finding different possibilities and, 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 and absolutely learning from the Sex Pistols that bum notes are sometimes the best notes. So Bodies, for me, I think that still stands up as the most visceral um, and and still shocking to this day, hmm. powerful piece of art that the Pistols created for me, yeah. both musically as well and lyrically. That's, that, that's the, the from my own point of view, the empathy I, I have for women who who have a uh, the endurance course of an unwanted uh, child. Um, they have to find an answer themselves, and it's not for any man to tell them that. And don't ever presume that a woman would would make a decision like that lightly. I know this from experience and everything I've known about growing up. I mean, uh, my own mother um, uh, had me before they married. Um, 
And I knew what a shame the Catholic Church and society was bringing on her because she explained it to me. And so then, but for the grace of whatever, my mum made a decision to have me and, and married my dad. But she might not have been able to. And it's, it's you look at um, orphanages, and, and, and I, I dedicate an awful lot of money to orphanages, and I keep that out of the public eye. It's no one's business. It's just my empathy for unwanted children. How horribly cold and isolated those children feel. It's really sometimes, in many cases, not a life worth living for them. As um. This is after the death of my mother. Let's deal with this as an example. What my dad used to do was he'd run uh, weekends for kids from orphanages. So they'd come visit and, and live with a normal family for a weekend. And you'd bond with these kids and then, you know, they'd, they'd become family members. But the authorities discovered that one of dad's own natural children was Johnny Rotten. So they stopped tip and that was the most spiteful thing ever I mean yeah. you know we knew the, we knew these kids and and we were denied access and yet they felt part of our family and that was torn apart by bureaucracy and presumption that we must be all ultimately evil for trying to share our world with other human beings less fortunate punishing punishing and all of that is in bodies it's a powerful yeah. song that's you know, we understand like why it has to be a visceral landscape I create there because of the pain that's in, endured all sides. And to presume that abortion is oh, just some flippant anti-religious thing. No, no, everybody feels this. Filth and fury, filth and fury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all the headlines came out as, you know. Fury, yeah, but no filth. The filth was them writing rubbish about us. Again, though, like, even while saying this, I can't help but feel stupid because I'm an uneducated musician who graduated high school 14, 16 years ago. Like, what do I know? Well, you've seen a lot of the world in that I time. Have, I that have, but I feel very unvalidated in my opinions because every opinion that I have is I've really built it because that's what I think from my life yeah. I'm, I'm really not a big person to be telling other people what to think and the reason why is because I don't think that I know it all yet you know like I don't know I have not found what is the you know the truth or the the bottom line or whatever it is in life and humanity I don't understand so that's why I hesitate to make heavy opinions, all I can say is what I think. So anything that I say, it's just what I think. It's not necessarily, it's not fact at all. 
and it might not and people might disagree with me people might say like oh well i see it from a different point of view and i'm like yo that's cool i respect that and if you want to lay it on me like what you think yo lay it on me maybe i'll learn something but like i know i know not <laughs> the only thing i do know is true is that i know that you, you can't separate people because you don't like them because they're different than you i mean that's just like you learn that in the sandbox when you're a kid you know like i didn't care that like i grew up Everyone was African-American that I grew up with. Everyone. There was five, five or less than 10 white kids in my school when I grew up. I did not realize that until I was in high school and I moved to a town where no one was African-American. There was like two. And I was like, the first thing I said, I go like went home. I was like, mom, this, why is this? Like, why, why is everybody white in this school? Like, what, what's up with that? And she's like, yeah, let me talk to you about different things. And she laid on some stuff, you know, because my mom's pretty smart about that stuff. She was, she was in Washington, D.C. during the 60s and all that. And she, like, she grew up. And, but I didn't, that, to me, came as the biggest and first shock of my life, culturally. Because I thought I did not see the difference at all no one ever said you see that you see that that little boy over there that you're playing with with brown skin he's different than you no one ever said that to me that's such a major problem i think as well there's so many yeah parents. why would you do that you have to learn how right. to hate right you don't just hate i naturally. think you do because it has like to be passed on or yeah like brought out you know i've even made it made an effort like i have i have two kids my eldest is he's almost four right now every time we've gone somewhere if he he has never said, like, if he says, look at that man, look at that woman, you know, and they describe, you know how kids are, like, super open. Yeah. He has never used skin color to describe anyone ever, and I'm proud of that, to be honest with you. Yeah, man. Because I have never taught him that there's a difference between the cartoon character that's pink and the cartoon character that's brown and the cartoon character that's yellow, and that's how I plan to continue to teach him. Like, there is no difference between anybody. Everybody starts. When you meet somebody, they start at 100. You know what I mean? Like, give them a hundred. They're the best person you ever met in your life. Let them dictate whether it goes down. Don't, their skin doesn't do it. Their race, who they go to bed with doesn't do it. Because guess what, buddy? You don't have to go to bed with them. You don't have to hang out with them. You don't have to go to the same church as them. It doesn't matter. That's a great like, life viewpoint to have. That's well, a great it's true, life man, because it's none of your fucking business what anybody else does. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I absolutely. hate that. I hate snooping more than anything. Like busybodies and chatterboxes about other people's lives. That's the biggest thing. Like in my personal life, I hate it. Like when people get involved in things that aren't theirs. And it's like, dude. I, I say dude because I'm like talking. I'm thinking in my yeah, head yeah, to yeah. my kid. And like yeah, we yeah. call each other. That. Like, hey, dude. <laughs> yo, bro. Like, you know, because that's just where we're from. But like, so I say to him, I go, dude, like, don't. You know, he doesn't acknowledge that. But when he's old enough, I'm going to tell him that. I'm going to be like, you know. I don't know because I'm I, like I, I imagine the first time that he sees somebody who like you know maybe he knew growing up was a girl and now they're a boy like I'm sure that's gonna happen like when he's in high school or college or whatever and he's gonna come home and he's gonna be like yo what's this you know and I'll be like listen you know like I'll be like that what I, the first thing I'm gonna say to him is what difference is it to you like what does that affect your life. And he's going to be like, nah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what he's going to say. He might say something yeah. wild. But <laughs> the point is, is you have to consider 
This is true in anything. You have to consider, before you decide your opinion on it, you have to think, what did that person go through to have to A, get the courage to make that decision, B, struggling their whole life thinking everyone's gonna call me a name, everyone's gonna gonna shun me, you know, because I like I know people that have gone through this and they've, they've told me that this is how they felt. I'm gonna lose all my friends, I'm gonna lose my job, I'm gonna lose my career. Everybody's gonna think I'm a weirdo. Like, you, you have no idea. Plus there's things that you could never experience that, that they've thought of and they've had to go through to think of this. How about you meet them with a little sympathy? How about respect as well? Yeah. How about you just ignore it and yeah. go on and have coffee? Like, and then if they want to talk to you about it, if they want to get real with you and they want to tell you about it, then listen. Just listen. Don't offer an opinion because you shouldn't have an opinion until you know. Like, you don't have an opinion. I don't have an opinion when I meet somebody. You know what I mean? Like, because I don't know. You have to listen before you form your opinion, and you gotta you gotta try and see things from the other person's point of view. Of like. Imagine the road they walked to get here, where I'm meeting them today. first song you wrote as the Bronx uh I think it was it was either White Tar or uh or Strobe Life the first three songs were Heart Attack uh White Tar and uh and Strobe Life so um you know it was one of those I'm pretty sure because I know the intro to Heart Attack kind of came together like as we were writing it I think it was White Tar was the first song and where were you at as a person in your life, in your headspace then? What informed the lyrics? And oh, what you were I was a mess. I was, oh, I was so bad. I was uh, high on speed. I was a really bad drug addict at that time. Um, How did you I'd, fall into that? Uh, just insecurity and, like, no direction and, you know, just, like, I don't know, you know? I was just kind of in school. I, I you know, I, I just kind of, I've always, you know... It, had taken a liking to you know exploring and and you know and when you're young drugs are a part of that and you know I, I got a little too carried away um and I you know I really I'm, I'm glad it wasn't like heroin or anything but speed's pretty bad you know so I was I was pretty tweaked on that stuff for a good for a good amount of time and uh in the early days of the Bronx I was you know did you have to get fully sober before you could then allow yourself to drink and actually you know enjoy vices in a normal way again does that make sense no no i never really did like the you know like i mean i, I definitely stopped doing speed <laughs> but like i didn't i never really had to do I you mean, didn't have to go to rehab or anything like no that. no i mean i overdosed and that was like it wasn't like a you know i didn't like die and come back it wasn't any sort of nikki six situation but it was enough for me to be like okay you know like the, and i'm very thankful for uh you know my mom my dad they gave me kind of the ability to be able to look at yourself from outside yourself and have you know i have common sense and i have a smart enough 
uh, brain and strong enough willpower to be able to understand when I'm at, like, I can't control something and be like, okay, it's time to change this, you know? Like, I, I've been able, I've been fortunate enough to be able to do that in my life, which is amazing because a lot of people can't, you know, when something gets a hold of them, it gets a hold of them. So, you know, I, I'm thankful that I didn't get too bad, you know, but yeah, it was, it was pretty tough and it was for a long time, you know, it was like the first... I don't know, probably all the way, I think the worst it was, was during the Bats EP, the Bronx Bats EP, I was out of my mind, and I just had, I had no lyrics, and I was literally, like, doing speed in, like, gas station bathrooms, and, like, writing, you know, trying to come up with lyrics in my car, and, like, it was, it was... Just running around town like a wild man. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely, like, you know, on, just on one, and, uh, and, you know, but it's like, I, I... It is what it is. I look back about it and I talk about it because I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. You know, it's like it's all part of my life and it's all part of the path that brought me here today. And it's like, you know, it's it's all good. You know, it's like people go through fucking crazy shit in their lives, you know. So could have been worse, could have been better. But, you know, it's 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 my kind of gig. So, you know, I just I'm, I'm stoked that I'm in a better place now. And, you know, I've still go down my wormholes every now and then, as we all do. But, hey, man. you know, it's like. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty stoked at, you know, how I kind of came out of all of it and the fact that, you know, the Bronx is still going and, you know, it's like James is in Canada, you know, Jorma moved on to Eagles of Death Metal, which is awesome. And, you know, what's the deal? <clears throat> excuse me. What's the deal there? Is that a, a mutual parting? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. That was just like, it was, you know, there was uh, some... Uh, there was some tough dynamics in the band just as the band gets older and you know different people want different things out of it you know so it gets uh, it gets tough sometimes to make everyone happy and as you grow as an individual your own needs become different than everybody else's you know like when you start a band it's usually like all for one one for all like you know us against the world type thing and that never changes but it just gets more complicated as you evolve you know as you you know, if you get like a record deal, if you have a crowd, if you're like, you know, as the band gets more attention and gets bigger and life goes on and, you know, you're still doing this thing, you know, 10, 12, 13 years later, um, it's just, it's not the same as it was when it started. So, you know, it's like, it, it sucks to have to, to split apart from people that you've, you know, gone through so much with. You know, but it like, it's just, you know, sometimes it's just the the best thing to do for the situation. And it's like, you know, the band was kind of at a standstill for a really long time. And there was just some things that needed to be addressed. And so, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it, it worked out for the best because everyone involved has something going on and, you know, has something that, you know, they can put their energy into you no know? one's been left behind exactly yeah exactly so you know for, for he's us, got to contend with jesse now though man yeah yeah you <laughs> no, know? that's a wild man I, yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely man you know but he's killing it and and it's great you know it's uh, we're, we're all super stoked for him and and we're you know super stoked to be able to move forward and and start on bronx five so um, you know, I, I think it's it's always a shitty situation when you have to go through that, you know, especially personally, you know, because it's, that's pretty much what it's all about. You know, it's not really a, like a band thing. It's like a personal thing, you know, because you've been through so much with each other. It's like it sucks. That's where you feel it the most. You know, it's like you don't necessarily miss someone as a drummer or a guitar player, or as a singer. It's like you miss them as a friend, you know, so 
uh, that's the part that sucks, you know, but it's like, you know, we're, we're all, you know, pretty, uh, mature human beings. So I think everything's all right, you know, but you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, it is what it is. So onward and upward. It's a crazy cycle, man. You learn a lot when you make a record. <laughs> what did you learn from, I guess, just touring and being in a, a working band for this amount of time, 25 years? What have you personally sort of, you know, learned from that unique experience? One of those things would be that the fucking, that the world is a good place overall. Wherever we go, all these travels, Japan, Australia, you know, you meet good fucking people, man. You know, and I, I kind of have faith in that, like, world community. Yeah. And I feel like that we have a very specific perspective, obviously, because we're, you know, we're going in to play music and people like music. So it's like there's there's a positive energy with whoever we go, the loaders, the promoters, the interviewers, everybody is, you know, it's a positive thing. So I'm really fortunate to experience the world that way. But that also puts my beliefs in the thing of like, well, yeah, but, you know, this could be like this for everyone. You know, if, if someone is into whatever else, it doesn't have to be music, but there's positivity everywhere. And I don't know, I've, I really like kind of get behind that weird world community perspective you know you go see a punk rock show in houston texas or in birmingham or in tokyo it's not really that different you know the the fan is the fans are are the same you know they wear shorts and t-shirts and they sing along and they jump around and they have energy and they're they and they want to have a good time you know and they want to take pictures it's it's uh people are the same everywhere man you know it's like the, these lines that are drawn and all, all this shit and I just don't. I don't understand. I don't. I don't know how people can get through. I mean, I'm, for, I'm in my 40s, right? Maybe you know, you're a teenager. You're 20 years old. You're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. You're still, you know, you still think that you know racism makes sense, or you still don't understand why this couple is two guys or something. Like I, maybe you're dumb. You're young. I get that. But man, after being around for a while, those lines just disappear. I just, I don't understand how you know traveling the world is a real way to understand that we're all the same and that shit doesn't matter so as far as world you know philosophy what i've learned i'm like that's really what i've learned is the world should be all good because we're all the same if think if everyone traveled the way that and seen what i've seen they would be like yeah just you know it's silly to be caught up on some of the stuff man it bums me out Um, could you tell me about some of the early two-tone and punk shows and try and paint the picture of what the crowds were like? Because I gather there was a lot of tension and division at that time amongst the subcultures and amongst like mm -hmm. the races as well. Mm. Um, 
Was it pretty hairy? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's um, pretty much as it is now. I suppose you find yourself on the street amongst a load of EDL supporters. <laughs> it was a little bit like that every now and again. A couple of weeks ago in Birmingham, yeah. indeed, yeah. indeed. Um, yeah, it was awkward, but I, I think too much gets made of it sometimes by the media uh, from those times. Because it's, it's a really useful sort of peg to hang everything on, isn't it? That skinheads are all racist, skinheads are all this, and... And all that kind of thing, you know, and mods and blah, blah, blah. They don't like each other either. Um, and that wasn't really in the main how it was, was it? Yeah, not at all. It was, it was yeah. just there'd be pockets every now and again. Yeah. And yeah, there's the famous one of, what was it, Hatfield Polly or whatever, where we all had to be smuggled out or something like that because it was kicking off. But, but um, as I've always said, there's loads more um, racists and fascists walking around in normal clothing with full heads of hair I'm sure than there are skinheads who are doing that particularly these days um, so I, I don't really buy into all that we were young this whole country in those days was pretty racist um, because they weren't used to immigration um, and it wasn't just sort of immigration from the Caribbean it was immigration from you know Ugandan Asians were here Kenyan Asians had had come and, and all of those things and so there were successive waves and people just you know were feeling very jingoistic in this country it's an island kind of you know mentality and all those things they're feeling as though they're being invaded and with the help of people like Enoch Powell of course and rivers of blood speeches you can then rock this all up to uh, be an incredible kind of invasion of hordes from from wherever which couldn't have been further from the truth really um but uh, you know when two-tone came along obviously those things were being played out in society and a little microcosm of that was probably our gigs and that was great i mean that was uh, a very fruitful way to to uh, what well, a fruitful medium to be creative in yeah. and to talk about those things and talk about those issues um it was different than say you know turning up to a rock against racism gig where everyone's all on the same side and patting themselves on the back for not being mm. racist um yeah, i'd like to be in there i like to be in there you know see the color of their eyes <laughs> number ones in the United States. It's very hard to believe that because there's like like things like the Beach Boys never had four number ones. It's crazy. And yet, what were the four? Uh, well, Heart interesting. Glass. Heart of Glass, Call Me, Rapture, and Tide is High. Which is interesting because they're was all... Was Atomic not number one? I thought that was... Atomic was never right. even a single in right. the States. Wow. It was That's, over here though, right? Oh, oh, Atomic was huge. Yeah. yeah. That's the interesting thing about uh, uh, the international aspect of Blondie in general and, and where the songs were hits and where, where the songs weren't hits. The thing in the States is funny because as far as I'm concerned, those four, four songs are all one-offs. If, if you think about what most people think, well, I don't know what people think Blondie. Is Blondie some girl, some woman? Is Blondie a band? Is it like Jethro Tull? Is it... Is it like a pop band? Is it a punk band? Is it a, is it a, a disco band? It's very interesting that we cross, we blur all those lines, and that's a big, big part of our success 
I mean, they're simulating all these different things. Ramones were great, but they had really one sound one you thing, know, in right? a lot of ways. Yeah. Punk rock was great, but it really meant really only one thing at the end of the day. But now everyone, of course, takes it back and goes, punk rock is an attitude. It's a lifestyle. So um, getting back to the number ones, you had uh, Heart of Glass was the first one. Then there was Call Me, which we recorded like in one afternoon with Giorgio Morota. He had written the music, uh, forgot about it. I came back from a tour, I got in the car, turned the radio on, I heard the song, it sounded familiar, and it was Call Me. And that was like our biggest, that was the biggest record of 1980 in the States. And then we had Rapture, and we, I think maybe first was Tides High, and then Rapture, so we had like a fake, like a faux reggae song, a faux rap song. Uh, call Me is like a, a rock, dance rock song, I would call it. But none of them are like Picture This or Dini Dini or In the Flesh or Hanging on the Telephone, on the telephone yeah. or the, especially the stuff that really brought us the big success over here. Um, yeah, that's so an interesting it's interesting. Point. Like we're almost like a cult band in the States still. And but like how could a cult band have had four number one records? It's it's a really weird phenomenon. So you think if you lined up 10 people from different parts of the world, different ages, and sort of said, explain Blondie, what does Blondie mean to you, they'd all have completely different answers probably. There's a good chance of that. There is a good chance of that. Of course, most people that nowadays or whatever think Blondie is Debbie, and it's something that, uh, you know, I have to live with. And, uh, <laughs> it's not that difficult in the end of the day. How is it being in a band with a couple such as those two? And Well, now that's an interesting thing if that you, you can talk about it. that. Oh, well, the, the whole chemistry... Uh, getting back to my dad, my dad passed right when we were getting back together. And it was really kind of gratifying for me, for him to know that, because obviously we had all the success, although I went on and did a lot of great things. And, you know, uh, my dad came to the Eurythmic shows that we did in New York, he, like, like Mick Jagger's hanging out talking to my dad and, you know, things like that. But the Blondie thing was special, obviously. And I was a kid, you know. I mean, we broke up. I think I was, we stopped playing. I think I was like 24 after all that success. So um, I would have never thought off the top of my head that Debbie and Chris and Jimmy Destry would be at my dad's funeral and at the, at the graveyard with me. And they were. And uh, getting, uh, you know, that was really uh, meant a lot to me that they were there for that. That's why you were always such a unique band. I mean, every punk band offered something unique around that original period. But I think with you guys, you had this duality of insanely catchy, hooky, pop-influenced, but then still avant-garde songs, married with these kind of existential, psychological lyrics. Yeah. Which was quite unique, even for punk, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's some of them simple punk bands, and, you know, God bless them, but they were just finger pointing and going, the government's wrong. And we knew life was a lot more complex than that, you know. And we'd read the existentialist books and all that kind of stuff. And for me, I'm a working-class guy, but, you know, 
a lot of working class people, you know, read all this kind of stuff. And I thought, when they come for me from Oxford and Cambridge, I'll have them, you know what I mean? You've got to be, you know, defensive on every level. You've got to be armed, you know. But also, it was lovely to go into that world, you know, from growing up in that humble Terry Street to all the beauty of stuff. All the beauty that a lot of people in that street missed, you know what I mean? Um, you know, they didn't get it, you know. They but you realise you was one of them, but at the same time, you know, it's like I think Ibsen's enemy of the people, really, you know, because they'd be going like, who the hell do you think you are, and all that, you know, quoting Yates and all that stuff round here, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a bit like that as well. You couldn't get into it too much with them. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I do know what you mean. Which, which yeah. was kind of like, oh dear, you know, you can't win either way here, you know. Um, <clears throat> but we did have that, you know. When I met Pete... Um, we used to talk about all kinds of things. And the great thing about me and Pete Shelley, more than any other rhythm section we've had, and they've all been good and good mates in their own little ways, but me and Pete Shelley could stay in a pub forever and t talk about this, that, and the other, you know. And I thought, there's one thing about him and me at that time. I thought, he likes to stay in a pub and do at least eight pints a go, you know. We might come out arguing by the end, but we've had a good run, you know. And you're closer so than you went lovely. in. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. lovely, you know. I mean, but that was a lot of off-the-ball work as well, intellectual fencing, I used to call it, you know. wasn't arguing, but we never argued that much. There was a period of it, but when you're with somebody, like, for four years, we've been together longer than our relationships, you know. It's a lot to hold down, so we, we've done well on that. How come the, the band the, called the, Time back in 81? Just excess in the end. Right, it's like what you mean like the wheels were or... falling off the wagon. Yeah, it's it's one of them things where you think you're hip and cool and you're clever, but when you start going on the road, like we was on the top of the pops every other week and doing these thirty-two day tours every month, we never stopped. And then we started to go to America and all that. But you know, I think there's a it became more excessive, but I kind of like that. As I've always said, it's like Turner tying himself to the mass to feel the waves and the sea and get involved in it. I knew that I wanted to get involved in the, you know, the sex, drugs and the rock and roll of it. It's like, you know, suddenly he was alleviated and free and he had a bit of money, you know, he had no money before all this. And he was travelling around, you know. So we did have wild times and many bands go through that. And why shouldn't it be a bit crazy on the road? You're in a band, roll, you know, it? yeah, that's that that's what it was all about. You know, when you're twenty three, twenty four and all that stuff, you know, you're still buzzing and want some excitement, yeah. But also, you know, you read all the sucks, the laws of perception, gates of hell and all that, and was experimenting with this stuff. And sometimes, you know, it, it can be handy for, you know, word things and experience and Going inside yourself and finding out who you are. You know, Absolutely. a lot of things, would it? You know, it wasn't just if you put something into an empty vessel, then nothing happens. But if you put something in somebody's dangerous mind, things can happen. You know, and, and that's the thing. And it's how good at you are at walking the tightrope without falling off. You know, that's the danger. You know, I mean, I won't advocate it to anyone, but I mean, we lapped him and did all that. But it, eventually, as well, we. You know, we did about five solid years from 70, well, yeah, 76 to 80, going on 81. And we was kind of exhausted, really. But I mean, I would say you, you don't break America. America breaks you. Many people have tried. But I didn't mind that. I mean, 
we had some crazy times in America, you know, wild old times, you know. Ended up at people's houses all night and not sleeping for 11 days. I didn't sleep one time. 11 days? Yeah. Wow. So you come across all this kind of stuff and, um, you know, it, it's there when you're young to be embraced, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you, have a, you know, you get into it and get involved in it or you don't, don't bother if it's going to damage you or hurt you. But, you know, I enjoyed taking it to excess, you know what I mean? I've been to the edge many times, but just about managed to get back. You know. How long did it take you to kick the heroin? Oh, God. Well, I start, when he hit 40, he was like, look, dude, I shouldn't be even doing fucking, never mind, just heroin, all of it, a lot. Even smoking weed. He was like, I shouldn't be doing any of this. I don't want to be doing it. And 40, you know, it's like, fucking hell, because I had a big, bad time when he hit 40. I thought, fuck me, you know, 40. He was like, ooh. I'm not it was, of course, by the time I hit 50, it was fucking great. You know what I mean? I got even more comfortable in my fucking skin. Didn't need to hide behind in drugs anymore or whatever. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it took me about, from 48, I started on it. And I, 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 it took me five years to get clean. Five years, yeah. wow. You know, I mean, I ended up, you know, really, I mean, I'd done rehab so many times, never worked for me, just personally for me. Uh, and, and eventually I, I got on my bike at five o'clock in the morning and stayed on it every night till about 10 or 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Uh, Where's this? In the Peak District. Right. Although, you know, just cycling, like, fuck. And uh, I cycled through on the pain barrier and bullshit and hooked up again with my fantastic missus who blew me out back in the day, you know, and uh, yeah, the rest is... Uh, she helped you through it a lot, oh, did yeah, she? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, history, you know, yeah. Love it. Yeah. And I guess you had all that shit with the management company going on. Was that at the oh, same dude, time as that, kicking that the drugs? That went or? on for 12 years. I mean, I had 100% of my income in receivership. So I ended up in receivership because I wouldn't pay the Nicholses their 150 grand. Right? I just wasn't going to pay them. I should have won that court case. And because of the head I had on and the age that I was, it was like, fuck off. Anyway, so that ended up going into untold fucking, and it lasted for 12 years, you know, and and I couldn't go bankrupt, you know, if, if I could, I would have had no problem doing that, but I couldn't because you lose all your writing royalties. Right, everything, Everything's gone. gone. You never get it back. And as an artist and a musician, that's your yeah. pension, that's your life, yeah. isn't it? So it took me 12 years to get in there, you know, I fucking hate receivers. I hate, they're the biggest robbing cunts going. You know, and all they've got to do, they'll never tell you how much you've got, you know. And, and then they just take 100% of your income, right? So you can't then pay tax on it because they don't pay the fucking tax. They take 100% off you and don't pay your tax. How are you supposed to do that? So then at the end of that 12 years, you're hit with a 12-year tax Oh, you've got to then go to tax lawyers, you know, and, and do all that and everything. That, fucking hell. So, you know, 12 years and, and I finally got Brian Fugler. 
who who's the guy who sorted Georgie Best out, and uh, Brian went and did a deal on the golf course, and we got out of it. Nobody else could could do it. So yeah. So like, yeah, I had to deal with all that. I mean, the way I dealt with it was just stick me head in drugs. Yeah. Well, it's sort of understandable, really, isn't it? Because that's a fucking shit situation to, oh, to be I mean, in. I mean, you see, the thing is, as well, you get knocks on the door like, what are you doing here? And now you're paying that electric bill. And now you're paying your rent. You know what I mean? You're in the fucking terraced house in the ass end of nowhere. And then they want to know how you're paying your electric bill, you know, because they really want they you to show up on an house. They wanted you in a box yeah. under the motorway, you know. You've led quite the life, haven't you, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any regrets? Because um, I know some look, people go, it's made me who I am today. Yeah, well, and it has. It's made me who I am today. Look, look, it's not that I've got massive big regrets. I mean, of course I've got regrets on certain things. These certain things that if I could change, I would, but you can't. You know, but, uh, you know, all in all, I'm all right. I'm not bitter. Because that, well, you carry that with you everywhere you go, don't you? That frame of mind, it's a weight and it brings you down and it brings people around you down. Maybe I'm just too fucking stupid to be bitter, you know what I mean? I just don't give a fuck. Reading your book, I sort of got the sense that whether or not it was conscious at the time, yeah. it definitely is in your mind now looking back. Yeah. That background really shapes a different mindset coming yeah. to play in the field of the music business where it's a lot more yeah. middle class. It, 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 Would that yeah, be fair? Yeah, well, it, it, I'm not sure the music business was always middle class. It's pretty middle class now, you yeah. know, but it's like... Um, I'm not sure when I came into it, it was middle class. I mean, I think, I'll just go into the childhood thing. I think the thing that gave me my drive was my relationship to my family, really, my mum and dad. And, uh, you know, I was never an academic kind of person. So, like, you know, I stopped going to school at 14, you know what I mean? And uh, there was, like, bad behaviour by my old man who drinks a lot, um towards me in particular that ended up in a couple of hospital visits and stuff like yeah. that, you know. And uh, so I think... You wanted yeah, to just get away? No, I wanted to stick one right up on basically and be, be really successful, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, Not so much my mum because my mum... My mum was really happy for me the minute... My mum died when I was young, but... But my mum saw me be successful with the Mary Chain because I was 23 managing the Mary Chain, and she actually saw that before she, she died, do you know what I mean? So my mum was actually happy for me. I'm not sure my old man was happy for me at any point in my life, do you know what I mean? You know, I think it was just always a, a bone of contention with my old man, really, and, uh, but, which is fine, you know. Did he ever people. clean up? Uh, I haven't seen him for years, dude. I haven't right. I seen him for five, six years, but he's a... Uh, my sisters say that he's still staying up. I mean, he's kind of rock and roll, and in a... In a cliched way except he doesn't play guitar you know what i mean he, he's a like a rock star without a guitar yeah, yeah. yeah he's a rock star without a guitar he's like he he kind of staying up to like four or five in the morning quite a lot of mornings getting fucking pissed still at 84 i mean that's almost 
that's almost like how could you put that? That's almost that's almost like a job in itself. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I mean, even I got bored of that by thirty three. Do you know what I mean? You know, so it's a bit like he's a so, lifer. Well, uh, he's been been pissed ever since I can remember him, and that was like about you know he was he was he was he was he was he he, he, he held a job down. But since he stopped working at 61, he's like, you know, he's just been an alky, basically. <laughs> he sort of came to your side, would that be the right way of describing it, yeah. when you had your moment of... Yeah, he did. I mean, we, 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 I, mean I could be a cynical twat about it all, but I won't be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah. And say, you know, that, you know, it, you know he, he came because basically, you know, you know he, he, had a, he had a piece of creation, but... But really, I, I, you know, we got on. We got on in the nineties. That was the only era we've ever got on. Weirdly, we never got on before that. And then we got on from about when my mum died in ninety. Me and my old man, we got on for about ten years. I think I felt sorry for my dad when my mum died, and that was a big part of the whole thing. You know what I mean? Um, and um, and then you know, then I got ill with the drugs and. My mum was, was was good around then, you know what I mean? And then, you know, what happens, it's like, unfortunately, you know, my old man was better when he had no money, do you know what I mean? Because the minute we wedged my old man up, we had a load of money, do you know what I mean? We made him a millionaire, right? Um, What's you know, that money going to go on? I don't know, but it wasn't so much the booze. No. It was just, it was just. I think he just changed as a person, to right. be honest. And I think he was a nicer human being, actually. With nothing. Well, when he was earning his like you know eleven grand a year, as a it sounds terrible to say that about somebody, but he was a nicer human being about money. Do you know what I mean? You know. So let's talk, I mean, let's just go in on it then, if you don't mind, on the whole Dickies palaver. I'd love to know your thoughts because for me, I think the Warp Tour has become this sort of confused event and obviously you book in bands that predominantly appeal to really young people and then to put on the bill with these sort of, you know, very youth-orientated emo in many ways, people might want to call it bands, to have a kind of provocative, outspoken act like the Dickies on a bill like that is... Do you think you perhaps run the risk of alienating Offending somebody? Because it's to me, I mean, don't go to a show that you know is going. It's like going to an Andrew Dice Clay show and being offended. Do you know what I mean? It's well, like the Dickies. You, you know, I've known them. I guess probably since I was sixteen or something, and Degeneration toured with them a lot. And I, I'm a big fan. I think they're a really super talented, underrated band. And but they're a funny, fun band, and it's a goof. I mean, Leonard has a great sense of humor. He's highly intelligent. And not only a talented singer and all, but like he does a bit where he comes out and he says, you know, uh, we are the Dickies and I'm Leonard and we love you 
so much. We would like to go out, we would like to go down on each and every one of you tonight. But sorry, we don't have the time. And like it's all just a shtick that he does. And uh, maybe somebody had heard it. I had heard that he was kind of set up, that someone had heard the show previously and was offended, had signs. So the clip that you see, from what I understand, and even getting in touch with Leonard um, and just reaching out to him as a friend to say, hey, you know, I hope you're okay. It was like kind of a setup, and you only see in that video him going off, which is pretty intense. If you see that, I get it. I mean, I don't want to hear women being degraded, you know, with the C word or whatever. I guess I can say cunt on this. Uh, yeah. But, you know, he, like he said, that where my mistake was, I think he wrote me and said, I, I said the wrong word. If I would have said asshole, it would have been this sexist thing. But they were calling him like a predatory old man. Like, yeah. you know, ageist and, 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 you know, he's predatory. It's it's complete comedy. The band is called Dickies, and uh, he has a puppet that's a penis with balls named Stuart. And, you know, the, the whole bit has always been very funny and very smart and uh, made to be a little provocative or offensive, of you course, know, like yeah. Lenny Bruce or like the Pistols or... And uh, so I think he got a bad rap. I think he got upset and he overreacted. And when you're in those situations and you're on those stages and you feel like, you know, maybe... It isn't the perfect mix, but if the Warp Tour is about punk rock, and I like Kevin, and I you know think they've broken a lot of great bands, and people have had so much fun over the years, you know they're probably putting the Dickies on because they believe in the legacy and where it comes from. And punk rock isn't just some neat thing that fits into a hole at some summer camp or theme park or Disney thing. So there's going to be that, and people should think if they're taking their kids to a punk show that it isn't going to be all clean emo core stuff. So maybe he you know flew off the handle, but. His thing is not that, and he, I've lived, you know, on many tours and vans and traveled with them, and he's an honorable, great guy, and is is actually very respectful of women and men, and very open-minded, and it's not some sexist, you know, creep that's going to do that, I think. Uh, he was pushed, and they knew, and they had these signs, so you only see one side of the story, but there is something to say, like, I, I guess the, to repeat it is really just that punk is about freedom of speech and saying whatever, obviously... You know, you don't want to have racist, sexist. It isn't so much fun, though. I do have friends that like Screwdriver. You know, they actually have a couple of good songs. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the implications are for punk rock if people are sort of siding against him in such a way and saying, you know, there's no place in this scene for that kind of language? And you are, so I, because I think that bands like that, who are, I think, funny, and I've got, I think, a sense of humor that, you know, yeah. is on point with that, but. It seems to me like nowadays it's more encouraged to like call that out, which is good in many ways. It is good to call out things if they're evil or, do you know what I mean, manipulative or harmful. But I think to just call out something for being shocking and funny has sort of a dangerous implication for... Well, it's a censorship, you know. Yeah. I mean, treating people bad. I mean, I look at rock and roll or punk rock or whatever community, the music community, let's say. I look at that as a place where we got to stick together. It's us against them. We're outside of society. We're people that have come together because we love this. We have a passion. We might not fit into the norm, the mainstream, the cookie cutter, what you're supposed to look like, what you're supposed to listen to. Um, we've dug deeper. You know, a lot of us have found things that are obscure and records that have changed our lives. And the message being freedom and individuality and expression. And sometimes there's things with jokes that are, you know, meant to shake people up and move them a certain way. 
And like I said, I wasn't. I don't think his point to to degrade or make anybody feel bad. But they, I think, were offended and made him feel bad. And I think if you go too far into that, you know, you're going to have censorship, like they tried to do with um, the PMRC in the '80s. You know, they came after the dead Kennedys. They came after Jello Biafra for a poster, H.R. Geiger poster with Frank and Christ album, because there was like these penises. You know, it's a part of the body. I think like somebody once said, well, if you're really uh, you know, believe in all this religion and everything and the body is so horrible, then you, you know, you've got to blame the creator, the almighty God. You know, it's, it's the human body. It's There's not, nothing unnatural yeah, about it. Yeah, and it's right? nothing offensive. It was animals and dogs and cats. They don't get offended. If you see a picture of somebody's penis, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, the dead Kennedys might have had a lot of things they were saying that were outspoken, but they, you know, came down on that. And Ozzy Osbourne and Zappa and all these people, you know, Frank Zappa spoke out a lot in his day, rest in peace. I mean, it was a time when, um, and it still is, you know, I mean, it's warning stickers on records. And I get that, that at a certain age, maybe a kid isn't ready to hear, um, you know, real graphic, crazy stuff, or even a, a crass record or a hip hop record or whatever. I think there's a time when you grow into it. Um, but you know, it's a certain kind of thing, a punk rock show. You're going out there. You saw Green Day yesterday. I don't know. I wasn't, I don't hear it like people hear it. Maybe he said the F word a few times. I don't, you know, I'm sure everybody said it that day. I probably did. It's just words. It's not out to, you know, you shouldn't be, words shouldn't be able to hurt people like that in such a sense. You have to have a sense of humor. It depends how it's used, I guess. It's like the N word. You know, the more, uh, used to be, you know, it still can be degrading, a degrading word to, to black people if you, uh, you know, use the N word, but they've used it so much in, in their culture and their music where, you know, they've taken it and maybe, um, you know, taken the sense, I don't know, reappropriate so, yeah it, just kind of where it doesn't have that power they've taken it back and, and killed any kind of place i mean it's still racism and judgment yeah it's never never pretty but um i think if uh, you realize that words can be like you said reappropriate just changed up and and have a way to defend it by desensitizing it to a sense where you can you know laugh at it or spit it back you know me all alone, no postcard or telephone, winter time down by the beach, the jukebox bar way out of reach. When that happened, there were a few cracks, but I never expected that. Uh, where it starts to get weird is... Did you know the guy? Yep. He was another musician, and uh, I knew about it as soon as it happened, and then she brought him on tour. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, I should have just gone home. I should have been like, but I couldn't because my dreams were coming true. So now I'm on tour. I mean, she used to, she still would wear the engagement ring. I'm on tour with my fiance and the guy she's having an affair. It's not really an affair because we weren't married, but it's felt, it felt like that. And, um, you know, they would get in the same bunk every night on the bus kind of a thing. And, I'd wow! Just, yeah, and sleep across. You know, I tried my best. You've been on a tour bus before, mm-hmm. but you can't really get that far away. It was just terrible. It really was terrible. Um, What's your crew sort of doing? What's their response to this? Are nobody they, they knows just, what to say. They just this is too awkward. We're staying out. Yeah, of it. everybody gets kind of quiet. Um, Do you have who, your own sort of like 
homeboy or best friend that you can confide in and kind of go and hang out mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. So you do have someone there to yeah. sort of little, alleviate some of the yeah, trauma. But, yeah, and the, but those conversations were really like, you know, we would go have coffee. We'd be in the next city. We'd go sit down and it's just like, I can't even believe this. Like, what do I do? <laughs> you know, I, 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 when you want something as bad as I want to play music for a living... You don't cancel a tour. You don't, especially when it's like get that much momentum. So uh, we finished that tour. Thank God. And do you never want to kick this guy's ass? By the way, of course I do. Um, every day. Duh. <laughs> yeah. It, and it would. But just again, like you don't want to boil my blood. Rock the boat and spoil the tour. From yeah. she's walking around holding hands. Man. And it had kind of started before they hadn't slept together until that party, I, um, or so I was told. But apparently they had been kind of chatting up until that point. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So that happens. We, we finish the tour. And, of course, it's like, get out of the house, you know, <laughs> all that whole thing. Get all your shit and go. <laughs> and she moved in with him. They got a place together. Are they um, still together to this day? Uh, no, no. Here's what. Here's what's funny. A lot right. of people don't know this, um, and this is just kind of a side point. They got engaged, uh-huh. and um, then she went out on tour and started hooking up with someone else. Uh, no, it's even <laughs> no. better. Even better than that. Well, yeah. So <clears throat> you dodged a bullet. Then it sounds like they're planning their wedding. Mm-hmm. Okay, they send out wedding invitations. Um, some people are going to hear this and just shit, uh, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> This is part of the story I don't ever tell. Uh, so they send out their wedding invitations. Uh, she even called me on the phone, I remember. Do you want to be invited to the wedding? <laughs> I was like, sure, invite me to the wedding. I'd love to be there. There's no way I was going to that wedding. Anyway, um, about a week before the wedding, the invitations had all gone out. I got mine. Um, this guy sits her down and says, I can't. I can't do this. I'm gay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and he and was good act- for him. I guess he was actually gay. He wasn't just using that as a get out clause. He as- was um, wondering. Okay. He wasn't sure. He wasn't way, sure. He yeah. But he. They called off the wedding. Um, <laughs> I think that. Yeah. I think the conversation was more like, I think I'm gay. Right. right yeah, right, I need right. to go figure out. Yeah. If- yeah. I got to work some things out. Yeah. And you know. This is a movie, man. This is a movie. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. Uh, it, and it's going to get better in about two minutes. Okay. So that's side note. And, um, man, if if you... I don't want to say his name. If you hear this, I'm sorry. If Maybe you're in love now. Maybe you met some man in San Francisco. And, <laughs> and things are great. So I'm sorry if that causes any drama for that person. Um Okay, so let's, we're but back. You we're did the, kind of sleep with my fiance. Uh, uh, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. and do you know he lives in San Francisco? Or are you just going on the that's the stereotype. No, he did. Gay hang no, out? yeah. <laughs> like, There's a little <laughs> knife in there. Yeah. No, he totally no. moved to San Francisco. Right, right, right. That he actually makes did. sense. That's where they go. I'll go there. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so you really can't make this up. No, you can't. So. <laughs> Okay, we're now we're back. Let's bring it back. Every plot twist it just gets better. Yeah, so smile, smile, tour ends. Those two move in together. Uh, I start writing these really, um, 
like sad, angry songs about what she did to me, right? Mm -hmm. And I decide I write one that's really good, right? And then I decide I'm going to email it to her. So I do, and you know, I'm supposed to just a mess at this point. I send her the song, like, take that, you know what I mean? I'm going to show her. Um, and then I'm checking my email, you know, every hour, like, did she get it? What's she going to do? Um, she didn't get upset at all. What she did was, and it's kind of the ultimate comeback, I guess. What she did was she wrote and recorded a piano part, put it on top of what I sent her and emailed it back. And that was her response. Just like, eh, good song. Here's a piano part. Right. And did it improve the song? It did. Wow. Um, so that, at that point I never went like, okay, well this needs to be an album. I was just like, okay, well I'm going to write another one. You know, that one didn't have the effect. Well, 10 or 12 songs later. Are right? you ramping up the aggression and yes. the hate every time as well? Yes. Oh my God. And, and there's songs about how she cheated on me and what she did. And, um, uh, one really angry song. I just remembered it started with like, uh, you're not forgiven for what you've done. Yeah. Opening line. Yeah. Have some of that. Yeah. And she's like, yeah. here's some cello. Yeah, pretty much. Here's a pretty, <laughs> let me just put some, let me tickle the You ivories. didn't keep sending her the songs and she kept sending them back with added parts. Is that what happened? Yeah. Oh my God. Um, no communication other than that nope. as well. Just here's a song. Yep. And she's like, well, here's a better song yep. with my bit in it. Yeah, it's better now. Come again. Yeah. Bring, bring on another and one. And you do a whole album like that. Well, we do what uh, our label at the time was like, what are we going to do now? Right. And I actually, I really don't remember. I wasn't in a mental place to even go down this path. I don't remember how the label got hold of at least some of those songs. I guess Jensie may have sent them. Um, cause they were probably asking her what is going on. We need another record. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> right. We might have something. Yeah. Well, there's this, right. So my manager at the time, Tammy, uh, called me, and she said, Ryan, we've heard these songs. Can you guys do this? Like, we think this is something, we, but we want to be able to Well, tell this is this. Fleetwood Mac rumors. It is, with less cocaine. Yeah, yeah. Um, less. Less. Yeah. Not uh, no. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I, again, we're back to the, I want to be successful, I'm going to do whatever it takes, right? So I told her on the phone, like, yeah, whatever, let's go. So we went and we re-recorded all of those songs. One of them, it's an album called Truth on Tape. One of the songs um, is the original recording from one of the emails. Uh, I think it's called Labor of Love. <laughs> so dramatic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's just ridiculous. But um, that turned into the most successful thing I've ever done. We had a... Uh, Hit Partly single. because of the story and the press yeah. around it, or because the songwriting was at that level of greatness as well. The songs were both. good, but it was uh, just that press around it was. Yeah, you never knew what was going to happen at the shows too. She'd walk off stage in the middle. I mean, I'm literally. I, sometimes I would turn my microphone and face her and look right at her, so the, the audience was looking at my profile, and I'm singing at her. You cheated on me, you know what? And dude, new fiance at side stage. I'd see, yeah, <laughs> I'd see. Of course he is. Yeah, I'd see him texting out of, his buddies, oh going, "Am I? Aren't I? Yeah. Why am I still here?" Yeah, you would think, <laughs> but he's over there, like with a drink. I can see him there with his drink, you know, just kind of bobbing his head along. Yeah, yeah all right, you guys are doing good. It was the <laughs> just weirdest. Working it out, just yeah. working it out. Oh my god.
was working with Brendan O'Brien. Fantastic. Um, because he, I mean, he is he a Georgia guy? Yes, as well. He's an yeah, guy. Mm-hmm. and he's obviously you know from playing with Dylan and Neil Young to producing Black Crows, and you know the list is endless. Yeah, he. he what did he bring to the table as a producer? He brought uh, s- several different things. Um, first and foremost, we knew that he was um, a great musician. He's a great guitar player keyboard player even a drummer not just like an engineer he's not just a pair of ears that'll come in for half a day and go I don't like this do something different you know he we, we knew and we knew from our friends who had worked with him the Crows and Dan Baird and all these people that he's very hands on that he would be down in there um, that it's very magical to work with him it's very exciting he's a passionate dude you know and he'll get the best performances from you that he can possibly get so um, and then I, I'd never met him before we started the record and, and we got together and on the phone and he came out to a show in LA and he was really funny and he's great and he's bud you know and uh, anyway um, we talked over arrangements and stuff over the phone because he was working on ACDC's newest album then Rocker Bus he was in Canada and uh, anyway so we met up and he came to Atlanta we recorded there and um, for eight days I think we was the initial um schedule for tracking the songs and it, I, I won't bore you with all the details but it was it was great you know he and I you talked. did the whole album in 8 days no well uh, the whole album in a month probably that's solid take, that's great you know? um, but we had talked about it he goes you know you just made a record that is basically you playing live the whippoorwill um, and I said I know we want to make a record that's bigger sounding we want like physical graffiti or even parts of Led Zeppelin 3 or um Aerosmith rocks things that have so much to hear like there's little textures and light and shade and all these different things that are really an experience it's not just a band he was right we just made a a really raw album but we wanted to make one that was just bigger Mm -hmm. that was my introduction to you guys was let me um, let me find you let me help you open the door yeah that song because I was working at a radio station at the time and we were playing it and I was like this is amazing well it's funny because we all throughout the album I mean it was just fantastic he's got so much knowledge and he gets great tones and great big sounds and he and he's very hands on and, and he's just right in there one of the dude, one, one of the boys you know and, and then when we were all finished and we put it out and everybody's everything's great and there was a certain percentage of our fan base who didn't like it it was different you know um, some people were like this is overproduced and, and I'm like, it made me angry, you know. You can't win. I'm like, yeah. what? Are you kidding? <laughs> and I had there was one journalist who made the point to me. He goes, you know what? This for me is like the whippoorwill is power age, and holding all the roses is highway to hell. And I said, exactly. That's what we were going for. Was that type of change? Not we didn't want it to sound like those albums, but that type of change, just a little bigger, honing, little, tweaking, a little more to listen to, yeah. big and exciting. Um, we can make albums of ourselves just playing in a fucking room for the rest of our career. Let's make a big sounding record with Brennan O'Brien, you know. And that's what I think we did. And and so to those people who didn't like it, I, I just was like, I don't understand you, but whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, Rock and roll again is an absolute jam thank on the album well, as well. The, you know, thanks to social media people, um, you can instantly know what they think. 
and this mob mentality starts, you know. Like I remember one lady there on on rock and roll again and another couple of songs there are like uh slap vocal like a, a tape slap echo or double track. And uh one lady I was was like, "What is wrong with his voice? I don't understand." But I wanted to go, "Hey, you know what? Go listen to Give Me Three Steps, which I know you probably love. It's the same thing on the vocals on that song. It's just a production thing. It's it's interesting, you know. Sometimes you Anyway, I won't go into it's all something the... new. It's something different. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy it. But and I, if you don't, then those first three are still there. But you know what? The same thing had happened when the Whippoorwill came out. There was no Facebook then. We had a message board on our website, and there was a whole list of people who hated it. Or like, what? Zach Brown has ruined Blackberry Smoke. <laughs> just uh, you know, and it's heart crushing kind of shit. You're yeah. just like, really? I love it, so I fucking don't care if you don't like it. But then that'll be the people that'll come back later and be like, you know what? I, it took me a while, whatever for whatever that's worth, and now I love it. I'm like, well, good, thank you. You know, I don't know why it took you a while, but <laughs> I mean, if you... I think it's ultimately a sign of when fans feel like they have ownership over a band, that's because they have a deep, yeah, found love for that band. Right, and ultimately that is a good thing. It's mm. just sometimes you do just wish they'd sort of see the bigger picture and be along right. for the ride with you. Well, we've tried to make it clear. Um, I think our our real fans understand that it is a ride that we're not going to repeat ourselves and make the same album over and over again, because um, that's boring. Yeah, amen. You know, if Zeppelin did that, we'd hate him. It's really worrying for me as someone who lives in England to sort of witness how completely disillusioned the working class of this country are with the party Labour that are supposed to represent their interests. And that's why in this country and in America, I think you have these people with extreme views being embraced by so many people is because, and I'm trying to see it from those people's side. Yeah they obviously feel completely disillusioned and let down by years of systematic lies that have yeah. been f- and now all of a sudden here comes along someone with orange skin and <laughs> and, a, and a white wig and tells them you know that he's going to solve all their problems and yeah. they go oh yeah okay here's the guy we can finally get behind he speaks the truth yeah because for some reason they think of him as being an average joe which he absolutely is not um you know i, I grew up in the south and and in the South, there's a big problem with people voting against their own self-interest. And, Crazy to me as well. Yeah, and some of it's due to being misinformed. But uh, as you mentioned, there is uh, this kind of multi-decade systematic problem that's been going on, and people genuinely have something to bitch about. It's just don't buy into the wrong solution, which is really what's happening now. And and it's very unfortunate. Maybe uh, 
we have to go through this to get to the next step that we can only hope. But uh, right now, I just see people cutting off their own tails. What do you think the the steps are towards, you know, a solution that is actually going to hopefully benefit and help those that need it? And what do we as human beings have to do? And I'm not saying that you have the answers because none of us really do. Otherwise, hopefully we'd be in a better position. But what's your thoughts on where we need to go to try and heal and come together and overcome? The first thing in in the States is to get the money out of politics. I mean, they spend so much money since they passed what's called Citizens United, where corporations are considered people. uh, And so now they're allowed to contribute to campaigns, et cetera, et cetera. From that point forward, the ruination of American politics has just been like drastic. And so that's the first step, I think. But people have to get involved, you know, uh, that's the key thing. I Absolutely. Think. You know, you got to inform yourself and you got to make sure that the information you have is real. Yeah, there's such a problem with, uh, uh, you know, in the States, uh, and, and you guys have dealt with it here for a long time as well. There's a lot of people being formed by organizations that aren't being truthful. And it's it's very and it's certainly not objective. Right. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I keep thinking, well, maybe as you watch the TV and someone's talking, maybe there should be fact checking simultaneously. But then, of course, someone would hack into the fact checking and change that, too. You know, so it, it's it's hard to say because technology is ahead of us right now. We have to catch up to technology, I think. And try and direct it in the right way. Yeah. Utilize it as a tool instead of a weapon. And, and uh you know, we we can do that. I just feel like it's such a 60s mantra to say we all have to do this together. But I think that is the key. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. He hung himself with the mic cord, you know, once by accident, once for real. And he died on stage. He was clinically dead for quite a, quite a while. Wrote his note. He used to climb up on the lighting rig and with the mic cord around his neck and it was still holding himself up and it was like hanging there and one time his hand was sweaty and it was maybe a little out of it so all of a sudden the roadies noticed he had like piss pouring down his leg and it was turning blue so they took him down and he was actually dead clinically dead for quite a while and they, they revived him and you know they told him a week later they didn't tell him they're telling him at first and then they said you know do you realize that you died I said wow Wow, and the only regret he had was that he hadn't experienced out-of-body experience. <laughs> I was like, shit, I don't remember anything. I <laughs> blacked out, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, what? that guy was... That's like, rock and roll, right? Yeah. I mean, when Hanoi Rocks was breaking up after Razzle died, I moved in with Steve in, in London. I moved from, from, from Avonmore Road from down here to Portobello, off of Labrock Grove at Rundle Gardens. You know, we had a great flat on the top floor. We got to the rooftop and everything. And that was, we lived together on most of the... Year '85 until the end of the end of the year, I moved to New York then. Too. But uh, tell yeah. me, tell me so, about that year then in London with Steve. London, when oh that, that was well, so Johnny Thunders moved in as well. <laughs> he had wow. been, he'd been thrown out of his. Uh, he had a, his girlfriend in Stockholm. He, the, the family threw him out of the apartment, and uh, he was like homeless. And so I said, yeah, you can stay here. And uh, so there's the three of you living together in the flat, yes, London, yes. in 1985. Yes, yes, in, in London. That was. That was definitely <laughs> never a dull moment. I mean, uh, Steve was on the road a lot, though. So I was uh, I was there with Johnny a lot, and I was making the decision to stop Hanoi Rocks to maintain to save uh, the maintain the integrity and just to go to show that there's at least one band that doesn't just do it for the money. You know, it was, it was a the situation was such that it could have been really a big band and. Uh, it would have been even worse that way because uh, it would have been a curse because if people had gotten to know Hanoi and the, the wrong Hanoi, you know, because there was the spirit and the band and what, it, what we had with Razzle, you know, that was really special. And Do you I, think that the band perhaps died with him then? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Hanoi Rocks died with Razzle, I think. Yeah. The original Hanoi Rocks, that was, that was the end of it, you know. And then Sammy left also. So we all of a sudden, we didn't have a drummer or a bass player and that was just me and Andy and Nasty and... They were like really down there, and I was like up there. <laughs> so there's no connection, and uh, it was just to me. It was more the most important thing was to end the band and uh, maintain the integrity of the band. You know, that was it was really real, it was spontaneous, it was honest from the heart, and really we were really special. You know, and I wanted to maintain the memory of maybe be more like a rarity, and uh, at least uh, have that cool, cool. Uh, thing about the band, you know, that people would know, you know.
as many Andy Kaufman fans do, I, I, I really sometimes hope that it is a big prank and that he's is not uh, that he didn't pass away from cancer and that he's going to come back someday and and surprise everybody. We can hope. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Can I get real with you for a second, Tom? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. At that point, what in has time, it been up till now? Has it been uh, fake up till now? It's been. This has been like the the first course. Yeah. Now I want to go straight to the main because I know you're tired and I don't want to keep you for long. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. And I want to ask you a personal question about what happened with your illness because yeah. about three years ago I broke my spine. Out three places. Oh my gosh! You... Was in hospital for three months. Okay. Like eight hours away from death. It was not. Wow. And in that moment, sorry to hear that. It changed my outlook and perspective on life. Yeah. So much, and it got me thinking about in the lead up to this conversation, you at that point in time when you were probably like the peak of your fame and popularity, right? It was exactly when you got sick. Yeah, it was. What a crazy whirlwind to be in anyway, healthy. And then that comes into the mix. How did that affect you at the time? And, and what did that experience teach you? Do you think now looking back at it? Because it was such a brave, raw, vulnerable thing you did filming it all in the way that you did as well. Yeah, I mean, it was just... And uh, so inspiring. It was a really uh, horrible... Uh, horrible timing. I mean, it's never good timing to get cancer, but uh, but that was probably the worst time to get cancer, regardless, because uh, the show was on MTV. It's why I stopped doing the Tom Green show. You know, people don't know that. I mean, generally, people don't know that the show was the number one show on MTV, and I quit. You know, at the peak of the show's popularity, to go deal with my cancer. And, um, and, uh, then when I finished with my cancer, I had several movie offers and, you know, I'm like, it's hard to sit here and complain about how horrible of a time it was when I had, you know, four movie offers lined up and I went from my cancer surgery right onto the set of Saturday Night Live where I was hosting SNL and then went from movie set to movie set to movie set for the next two years, you know, shooting films and, and doing incredibly well, it's hard to sit here and complain, oh no, what a bad time to be sick. I mean, it, it sucked because it's uh, extremely painful uh, physically and emotionally. It's very, very scary to think that you could could be uh, confronting death. And uh, But um, at the same time, uh, you know, it taught me that you can uh, battle through horrible things that you would never expect and uh, and still not let it uh, destroy you and uh, and it also makes you very aware that uh, that life is fragile and you have to be positive and and uh, enjoy and cherish every moment that you have not to sound cheesy but it's it really does it really does kind of come to the forefront of your mind you know like I'll I'll have a I'll, I'll on a daily basis I'll have something pop into my head where I think to myself, you know, at least I'm not in the hospital today. You know, if I'm having a bad day and something bad has happened, something that, you know, if I had not been through that experience, it would be like a really big deal and I'd be really upset. But, you know, I'll be walking down the sidewalk thinking about some horrible thing, supposed horrible thing that just happened. And I can just think, well, you know, at least I'm not in the hospital right now with tubes running into my spine and on morphine and and uh, fighting cancer. You know, uh, you know, it's, it could be so much worse. And so it's really hard to, it's really hard now to get really, really, really upset about little things. 
little things that would have been big things if I had not been through that. So it's been a, uh, a positive experience overall. I, uh, I say in my show, one of my jokes is I say, sometimes I think about my battle with cancer and I think I wouldn't trade it for anything, but then I think, actually, no, I'd trade it for my right testicle. I wouldn't mind getting that back. But, um, but it is true. I, 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 I do think that I probably gained more than I lost you know, from the cancer experience. I mean, they just took the right testicle. I mean, it's no big deal. I still got the other one. It's fine. It's the, the, I still have the left one. It's the middle one now. I'm doing my, I'm doing my jokes now. But, um, you know, the special that's aired on MTV, you know, many times doesn't air anymore. But, but when it did air at the time, uh, it, it raised so much awareness for testicular cancer that now here 15 years later or more, 17 years later, I've got people coming to my shows, you know, at least, at least once a week, somebody comes up to me after one of my shows and says that the reason they diagnosed their cancer was because of that, especially in the United States, because MTV was so in rotation. The show, that cancer special played on MTV, you know, probably a hundred times, you know, over the course of the months after I was diagnosed with cancer. And so, so many young teenage boys who would have never gone to the doctor, went to the doctor because of that. And that's when you get testicular cancer, when you're you know, 15 to 35 years old. So it was prime viewership for MTV. So all of these kids went to the doctor. Many of them didn't have cancer, but went anyways because they thought they had it. But so many people, like, it must, I, I don't know how many, but it must have been, you know, I mean, tens of thousands of people must have, I've, I've had letters from at least, a th you know, I've had at least a thousand people have come up to me and said that, that the show saved their life over the last 10 years. It's, it's, it's surreal. I don't think anyone really knows that. I don't think I've ever even really said it like that. I mean, I've told people, people come up to me all the time, but it's, it's actually got to be close to a thousand people now have actually come up to me and told me. So I can't imagine how many people actually, you know, went to the doctor because of it and, and haven't told me, you know. So what an amazing a, legacy. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I think MTV should air that show every year. We're gonna have a problem here. Y'all act like you never seen a white person before. Jaws all on the floor like Pam, like Tommy just burst in the door. We started whooping her ass first than before. They first were divorced, sewing her over furniture. It's the return of the Oh wait, no wait, you're kidding. He didn't just say what I think he did, did he? And Dr. Dre said Nothing, you idiots. Dr. Dre's dead. He's locked in my basement. <laughs> Feminist women love him and them. Chicka, 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 slim shady. I'm sick of him. Look at him walking around, grabbing his you-know-what, flipping the you-know-who. Yeah, but he's so cute, though. Yeah, I probably got a couple of screws up in my head loose, but no worse than what's going on in your parents' bedrooms. Sometimes I want to get on TV and just let loose, but can't. But it's cool for Tom Green to hump a dead moose. My bum is on your lips. My bum is on your lips. And if I'm lucky, you might just give it a little kiss. Um, I could talk to you all day, Alice. I feel like I should let you get back to your daughter in a minute. Yeah. Can I've we end on a... I want to just ask you about working with, with Timothy Dalton and Hot Fuzz. Oh, yeah, please do. Bond. What, yeah. what were those scenes like to shoot? Was he a good guy? He's amazing, Timothy Dalton. He's kind of like everything you expect him to be and more. He's got this... I mean, I think he was about 64, saying that ballpark figure, but when he did that, and he was absolutely gorgeous, like specimen of you of mankind i was like <laughs> sort of quivering just the size it's bond, of isn't it it's bond but it's quite interesting because like jim broadbent who obviously i'm a massive fan of is the same age as him really yeah wow but timothy dalton was like i don't know what the female equivalent of a cougar is like a panther he was like a panther <laughs> a and, jaguar yeah jaguar <laughs> and he has got this kind of actory kind of voice and um 
I remember this was quite amazing because he, uh, you know, Edgar's like, his attention to detail is quite amazing and they only had Timothy for like a day or something like that and um, he had to go back to LA where he lived and um, they sort of got all of Timothy's stuff and then they sort of said we'll get, you know, on the slide, I think they said the first day he said, "Well, we'll get some stuff tomorrow." And Timothy found out and was like, "You will not! I will not have Simon, poor Simon, acting without me being there. I insist. We must get this done. We must get this done while I'm here." And um, like he's old school, you know. But he was like a gent. He was like, you know, I have to have Simon has to have me to do the right performance and all that stuff. A real generous actor. Yeah, yeah, and there was, but there was also this bit where you said, um, "I thought Edgar that I would be leaning against the filing cabinet done for this bit." <laughs> like Edgar's, meanwhile, trying to get, like, trying to get all of his scenes done with him just sitting at his desk, so you don't have to do any camera moves or relighting or anything. And like Timothy's like, "But I thought I would do this scene leaning against the filing cabinet, like so." And Edgar was like, "Um." It's a great idea. <laughs> it's really nice. I don't, can't even remember what happened with it, whether he got his way. But, you know, uh, like when someone's probably used to working on a much bigger budget, like film. I mean, this is the thing. Like, Hot Fuzz doesn't feel particularly low budget, but it's lower budget than the budget that Edgar has these days. You know, like something like Baby Driver or whatever. What a creative guy he must be because I watched that film like two days ago again and yeah. uh, it's for me feels like a Hollywood film obviously the subject and the characters mm. are so British but the style of it is so American and Hollywood it doesn't feel like a low this budget is film yeah. yeah well he just knows what he just he's knows how doing to shoot action he's, well yeah and he's just I guess grown up with it just dissecting it and like he is that person that um, every camera move doesn't wouldn't pass him by of any film that he's watching he'd be you know thinking about it it's like do you, you know, watch films like that i do more now i mean i only really notice it when it's bad right <laughs> i have to say i mean sometimes i do see a shot i'm like oh i like what they did there um but these days it's like if if there's if they're filming something like what was it that we watched the other day and i went mad because i just couldn't understand gold i watched gold with um matthew mcconaughey and I was just saying to my partner, who also makes films, I was just going, why are they moving the camera now? Why is, what, what narrative purpose is this? Why, why are they zooming in? Why are they doing that? And he was just like, all right, calm down, shut up. And I was like, it's just driving me back because it's not telling the story. It's like, you know, when I'm working, even with like um, Ryan Edelston, who's my DOP, I'm like, if we're going to do a fancy move, why are we doing it? We need to know why. Like at one stage, you know, these days people are like, should we get a drone? Because you can get drones really cheaply and it makes makes it look expensive. And I was like, yeah, but, you what know, homes under the hammer are using drones because they're not expensive. Why? Is there a fairy in the sky that is zooming down? Like, you know, I can understand it if there's a supernatural character or there's like, or you're trying to give some sense of an overview, like God looking down or something, but... To just do it, like, oh, on the off chance, we might need a drone. I'm like, no, no, because it doesn't... So I'm quite I'm quite like that now. It's sort of like... I think this is the mistake a lot of filmmakers actually make when they're starting out. It's like they put in the fancy shot before they're thinking about whether it tells a story. And, like, I'm always, like, I'm mentoring someone at the moment, and I'm always like, whose perspective is this? Why? Who's seeing that? Who's seeing this? And 
who are we trying to make the audience empathise with because that's the viewpoint that you're giving. If you're trying to break out of that, you've got to give a reason why. I want to go back to this no memories before 18 thing. Oh, yeah. yeah because yeah. memories for me are such an important part of development. I'm not yeah. saying anything you know, new by right. stating sure. that. How do you, as a teenage kid, when you're going through puberty and those quite intense changes, how do you sort of develop at the same rate as everyone around you? If, I mean, at the time, are you forgetting as you're going? How does it work? Well, I guess you don't know because you can't remember. Well, it's a fascinating concept. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, I spent most of my life feeling a little bit like a visitor. You know, I wrote a song about it. It was called Drive By. And uh, it's, I guess it's sort of a dissociative behavior is what I think a shrink once told me. <laughs> it was all about, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm always a little disconnected from the reality and everything that's happening around me. And I'm not sure what that means because I only know what it's only, I'm, I can only think in relative terms to the way I live and of the course, way I yeah. think. Um, but it hasn't, it hasn't taken things like ability to feel or love. Out no, of, of course my life. not. So it's virtually, I feel that I live virtually the same life that most people do. I just don't, um, I don't always, uh, remember things that may be more important to other people. Like my wife will say if she Anniversaries, were Anniversaries, memories, things, yeah. Yeah, well, those things, the weird part is I remember my first telephone number. I, numbers, like I should have been a physicist because... Rayman things going no, on, it's, yeah. It's very strange how I can remember numbers and, and, and dates and things like that, no problem. I, I'm maybe the only person in my family that remembers everyone's birthday every time it happens and... I don't know. It's strange. It's selective, but I, what I don't remember is how I met my wife. At all. I don't remember it. And she does. Because I met her a decade before we started dating once and then didn't see her for something like 10 years. Um, you, and can, was, you can forgive that then, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, she, her and I sat at a table together. I was into her and we spoke for about two hours at a bar, like just the two of us, you know, it was like, and, uh, if I spoke to somebody for two hours that I was, uh, attracted to, and it was just a conversation, I must've really been enjoying that conversation. You know what I mean? It's strange. So now, you know, I've heard enough about it that I go, Oh, okay. Right. That was the night we finished Haas or uh, some lag wagon album. I believe it was Haas and we just finished mixing it. And so the band, and the producer, we all went to this this pub in San Francisco, and it's called the Lucky Thirteen. It's now just closed, but anyway. And they just, her and her friend, this sort of professional snowboarder, were there. So I know the whole story now, and I can see a little of it. 
But those kind of things are frustrating. You yeah, know? right. I'd like to. I, 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 I get a little scared that I might not remember some of my daughter's childhood at some point. And but you say that you don't me. remember much pre eighteen. Has your Very memory little. been better since you've you know become an adult? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, God, no. Um, actually, it's I, 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 again. If anyone who knows me were here right now, they would just go, "Fuck no." And uh, it, you know, it's difficult for other people. Much more difficult for other people than it is for me. Um, I live very much in the day, in the moment, every day. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't look back often. When I do, I get very nostalgic, and I love it when it kind of comes back certain feelings about a time and place that i haven't thought about for a while i'll be like wow that was great or that wasn't so good but it was what it was i'm very much in the moment in the kind of now me too and so and not even by default i prefer live that way i think you know i often say especially in a climate like the current climate in my country it's a great way to be you know i i left home on this tour and i i and i said to uh everybody on the tour when I got I went to Spain first on my own and I said to a couple of Spanish friends of mine um, I said I don't want to talk about politics at all I don't want to even hear the word you know the word I don't want to hear that name you shall not be named yeah, he exactly he is now whatever that guy's name was Voldemort, Voldemort yeah. yeah so and that was actually a joke at one point but and I I, I carry these uh, these iPod headphones and when people start, you know, if I'm at a dinner and I can't escape and politics start being discussed, I just <laughs> really? pull out you my just phone, pull them out. put them in. <laughs> yeah, it's really cracking these guys up because <laughs> one, so amazing. one guy I can't on the tour, he goes, oh, Capers pulling his headphones out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> must be bad. I just can't, I can't listen. Um, um, so I'm, I'm sort of on this mental holiday from that anyway right now. And I, and then I've, you know, of course I call home every day and. And my wife says, oh, my God, did you see what he did today? Did you see this? And I go, ah, you know the rules. I'm I'm just, you got to just take a little bit of time away from those things in general just to kind of keep your heart and keep your mind. I mean, yeah, I think it's very important to try to live in the moment. And uh, I, that's, I've wholeheartedly tried to, you know, teach my daughter to live that way, you know, do the things you love. Do you feel like, you know, when you got the sort of massive success that you did off that first album, it went gold fairly soon after yeah. it was released, right? Yeah. Did you feel that your life was changing or did that home community that you came from and that relationship with your father and mother and the people mm. you had in the life that kept you grounded, did that keep you sort of focused and humble? Because it must be hard to <clears throat> kind of all of a sudden be I on think the, the cover of magazines. And yeah, I mean, I didn't, I mean, the first album, I think, went platinum after the second album did. But it made a proper story out of what we were because it was literally, it was 97, I think, when it charted, like Beer Now was top five and OK Computer. So it was that period. So it was a lot of big albums out, Super Furry Animals and all that. So it was it was a period of time which was very much celebrated, you know, the new labour and all that sort of stuff. It was a big time in the country. 
when literally when Princess Diana died, he was, he was, you know, he was, I can remember it quite vividly when it came out. That whole period of time, what the country was like. Spice Girls as well, Spice wasn't it? it was huge. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, it was all that. Um, but I didn't think we sounded like the Britpop thing. We had a different sort of attitude. So because we were so close as a band, I don't think we let a lot of it go to our head at that point too much. And during the Wood Gets Around tour, we were still going in and out of the studio to record what was to become. Uh, performance cocktails I think when they said we could headline something like Cardiff Castle which was 10,000 people it was a bit of a shock to our system kind of going really 10,000 people you know less than 15 months ago we were literally playing in the pub opposite Cardiff Castle so that was quite a thing I don't think the thing about us being on the front covers and the band being affected mentally uh uh, through the situation of being thrown into this kind of environment happened really until the third album I think the first two albums we were really enjoying it we were really comfortable in our own skin and so busy that perhaps so you're busy not aware was of this and then it started storm. yeah then it was starting to, people were kind of coming to us for answers and looking into and analysing things a lot more than we'd ever really intended and uh, you then tend to go on the back foot you become very defensive and you become you know, everybody starts coming in a relationship. Some Stuart got married, uh, Richard got married. I was trying to keep pushing the band forward. And it was only then that stuff started to go a little bit like uh, less less sure of ourselves, I guess. Oddly, that was like when we were headlining the Pyramid stage in Glastonbury and Redden and Leeds. And, you know, so it's all happening at the same time, you know, in the front of every magazine, everything's going on. And, you, and you're not quite as comfortable with yourself as you was when you began. You know, because uh, things change as you as you get put into that environment. Because it's not a very natural environment, you know. No. So I think as well with you guys, like the press have been pretty shitty towards you at times, haven't they? Yeah. And pretty cruel, and that's yeah. obviously got to be hard to deal with. And well, that was the period where that was happening, really. And it was, um, I mean, it was undeniable that the band was probably one of the biggest in the country. We were selling at the biggest venues. We were headlining all the major festivals the records were all going number one it was all platinum and um, and I think a couple of journalists were putting us in it was that time where the enemy and the, they were slagging off people like Weller and us and calling it all meat and potatoes and you know it, it was too simplistic for some of the journalists I guess and the Jeep album which was the third album was even more simplistic because we actually took away a lot of the electric guitars in that record it was more of a almost like a country acoustic sort of record Um and I guess I didn't really appreciate that criticism because I thought we were doing really good work and looking at it now, you know, in the eye of the storm you're very you're very young, for one uh, you're very hurt, I guess and I wrote one song about one journalist and then from that point I went on a little preview tour for that third album and I think I was drinking like half a bottle of sherry or something on stage every night for some reason. It was supposed to warm you. Why throat. sherry? I remember somebody, <laughs> my dad had said when I was a kid, you know, a little glass of sherry before you go on, you know, you warm the vocal right, cords. Right. But I was ended up sitting down doing acoustic shows, drinking half a bottle of three quarters, and it was getting very warm and fuzzy and quite a nice feeling up there. Yeah, yeah. But then I had a popper, a few journalists, not by name, but I just was calling journalists lazy and uh, criticizing them. And, um, because that's how I felt at that time and I and I still believe the song because the song was about one particular person who came on tour with us and talking about Mr. Writer yeah <laughs> it was about one guy and he went away and wrote a different version of accounts and it, I just thought well I'd write my version of account you know but 
Like, I have a nice day is about one taxi driver. You know, Dakota, you made me feel like the one is about one girl. It's not like, I'm not talking about everybody. Uh, but it got kind of tired that I hated every journalist in the country. So then I would walk into an interview and they'd say, so, right. And so the first thing they would say to me would be, right, so you hate journalists, right? And then I'm like, well, where am I supposed to go from there? You know, so I was, uh, for a few years, it was very difficult to be yourself. Yeah, and to be who who I really was, which was really just a young kid from Wales who wanted to write songs. I never wanted to be famous. I never wanted fast cars and all that. I just wanted to be in a rock and roll band and play songs that I liked. You know, so I couldn't quite understand that for a long time and how I was supposed to play that card and how I was supposed to dig my way out of it. So I just got my head down and just carried on making music, really, the best I could. Season one of Sanchez is a raging success and I imagine your lives changed quite a lot throughout the period of the airing of that season. Yeah. Put us in the picture. Uh, well, no, it, it, it didn't change a lot. My life didn't change a lot. It was just fame. Like, people... It's just. But surely the introduction of that around your surroundings does change your perception, your headspace, the way people behave towards you. Oh yeah, it was and then therefore, yeah, your was, life to some extent. Oh yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Like it was fucking like, mm. like you got to remember, we're skateboarders. I'm gonna move this chair a bit closer. No worries. We're all we're just resetting. Still, we're good. Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry about the, the that was my fault. Why the stream went down. <laughs> so, you've got to imagine like we're skateboarders, and you know you, like, they don't want to let you in the nightclubs and shit because you just look like you know you just got the skate. You look like a skateboarder. So you're not going to come in this club, you know, you're getting kicked out of stuff, blah, blah, blah. You're dicking around, which we did quite a lot. You'd be in TJ... Certain clubs wouldn't let you in, like TJs and Metros, legendary Welsh rock venues, open arms, going in, fucking burn the place down. They loved it. But so we went from like, kind of like being like outside of that circles, like you can't come in this club, can't come in here, to fucking people like the people in the clubs that own them and stuff, just dragging us in, VIP areas, booze, fucking... People, I mean, I, I remember just like literally kind of being like pushed up in the air and like I'm on a crowd of people going for the pub, a bar or just a cr- a being club. crowd surfed through a bar. Just fuck, yeah. I'm like, what the fuck? It was insane. And, and like, I, me- I remember it at the time. It was, all this was going on and this one dude was obviously not happy about it. He's like, Ugh. he goes on MTV, you still drive around in a fucking Mondeo, mate. I'm like, who gives a fuck, dude? Look at this. <laughs> Look at this Who shit. gives a fuck? <laughs> so yeah, it did change. It, it did change. It was fucking crazy. And it was, it literally was overnight. You, you walked out and I just remember thinking, fuck. Because I'm a skateboarder and I go to the skate park to skate all this, you know, and people just start coming up to you. And then you kind of like go, oh yeah, I'm skating. You've got to talk to them. And then like, literally like, people just fucking loved it. You, and you just, answering questions and like people are just fucking buying you pints like there's parties there's all sorts of weird like shit happening and it is fucking mental mental it was fucking so fucking good (laughs) so good I you know like I don't at that point then was it all looking back like an experience that was positive and it was fun yeah although it was weird it was like it was light and it was great I was insane like you know to 
to be able I love experiences I'm a fucking experience junkie right that was insane like I, I went on all day to fucking Mexico and I forget like the show didn't just go to MTV UK it went to MTV South America it went to it went to fucking uh, all over Europe it went to the Nordic regions up in um, fucking like uh, Norway Sweden Denmark it went everywhere. It was like 60-odd countries before we knew it. So I'm, in, I'm on holiday. Season one's out. I'm with my, my girlfriend and my daughter. And I got the Mexicans coming out like, like, oh, my God, Dirty Sanchez. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Are you fucking kidding me? So it was, yeah, crazy, crazy, crazy shit, you know. But our lives didn't change. We, you know, this is MTV UK. We didn't have fucking boatloads of money, you know. We was, I still had a job at that time on season one when I was here in... I had a job in skate store, in freestyle skate store, in Abergavenny. They had two stores. So the one, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> I was at the one in Abergavenny at the time. He likes details, he likes details. Yeah, sorry, I know, I'm a fucking sucker for it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and it, it our lives did change, but they didn't change in the fact that we weren't buying boats and fucking, we weren't giving it Conor McGregor fucking money. You know, we were still skin fucking skateboarders, but we were famous as fuck. friends with Mike from No Effects. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's obviously been going through similar sort of things recently and he's been talking very openly about that on his social medias and how he sort of, you know, went through a detox, I guess is what he said he did as opposed to rehab, but there's a song on the new album. Have you heard the new No Effects record? I haven't, no. There's a song on it called I Don't Like Me Anymore. Oh, I did hear that song. I, I, uh, I guess I saw that on... And he's talking about looking at himself in the mirror and seeing, you know, this 50-year-old drunk guy looking back at him and not liking that person. Have you spoken to him about it and his I have relationship a, with alcohol and his journey? I have a little bit. Uh, he came out to the Falcon show in Los Angeles and we talked. He was during, he was busy with the detox at that point. Um, yeah, I don't really know what to say about that. I don't, I don't know... Um, I don't know what his story is. I, I, I usually see him and we talk about music. You know, we've, you know, certainly partied quite a bit together over the years. Um, I think, I think you can be in a position where, you know, as a really intelligent person, you can kind of outsmart yourself. And, uh, you know, my, Mike has said to me like, well, I'm not going to go into therapy. I can always outsmart the therapist. And, uh, I mean, he said that many years ago. I don't know if that's his take now, but I, I think that's might be missing the point of why you're there. I don't know. It's not a competition. Yeah, right? it's not a chess match. <laughs> if you want to play chess, join the chess club. Yeah, you know, therapy. I think is you know your goal. Your goal is to different. search something inside you, isn't it? Yeah. So I don't know, man. I'm I'm not sure what his journey is right now. I haven't been in direct. Um contact with him as much i mean i think our common denominator was probably partying and did you find that as well when you stopped that 
a lot of friendships perhaps changed because at the core of it was yeah, that side. I mean, I, I guess I'm finding that over time. I mean, the the thing that brings everybody together, though, is music. And so I still get to spend that time with people, and it's just this, the focus is a little different. I'm just gone before it gets really... Uh, Mm-hmm. gets really crazy I usually just tap out you know yeah. I go back to the hotel or I go back home or depending on where I'm at I'll just get on the bus I mean I I'm learning that a different tempo I suppose of, of what the night will bring and but yeah some relationships do change and and that's got its own baggage and sadness I suppose but I don't know I mean we're getting to the point you know when you're in your 30s you start to see people uh, go down some really dark paths. You start to lose people. People start to die. Um, it's not all fun and games, you know. And, and, and your your body starts to give out and stuff like that. I've seen it with with friends. I've lost friends to it. So I'm just tr- maybe trying to stay out ahead of that. I don't want to be that casualty. I've got nieces and nephews and and sisters and my little brothers like well, with me on tour. I I, I don't want. You know, I don't want to be pissing out of a, a fifth floor window in 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 Germany and fall out, you know, and with and have my brother have to deal with that. You know, that's that's what it it can get to. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're yeah. one slip away, and I think like coming to terms with that and knowing you're not invincible and uh, being willing to admit that has, I mean, it really has a positive effect, at least for me. Um, so that's why I guess I'm hesitant to, to make any comment about, you know, Mike or I don't, I don't know what his deal is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, wish I just wondered well. whether through your process, you had perhaps connected with people in a different way through sort of seeking advice. For sure. And, yeah. I mean, a lot of that though. Or whether you're on your own mental I'm on my journey. Own. I'm on my own. Again, it gets back to that Groucho Marx quote, but, but I do, I have found a lot of people, um, reaching out, you know, Johnny Two Bags from Social Distortion and, and just various people that have gone ahead of me um, and have played music for a lot longer and have done it with the elimination of, of the party, so to speak, you know, the booze and the drugs and all that, have reached out and said, like, hey, there, there is a, a way to do this. You know, I know it probably seems weird, and it does. It feels really strange at first. But, you know, give it a little time and see if you can hold out and and um it gets a little easier and and that's been true so far you know i i I still have my times you know but uh when are there moments when you perhaps miss it the most or you feel like you're sort of maybe itching for for a taste are are there any sort of triggers i guess would be the the phrase for you yeah there's there any specific for you that you've noticed recur and i think um I think, you know, the tour bus, you know, I remember, I mean, even coming back through all of these towns that I haven't played in a couple of years, you remember, oh, I was in that bar and that's a great place to get a drink or, so you sort of, I mean, Amsterdam, for instance, you know, I'm there and I'm like, oh, wow, this is, this is great. I don't exactly know what to do now after the show. The city not, of sin. Cause, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, I, I mean, I know where to get really good drugs there, but yeah. I'm not getting them. So you end up sort of cruising around the canals and having a look at 
other things and, and realizing how much beauty's in that city and absolutely that doesn't get really focused on from from sort of i guess a certain touristic standpoint because it is so renowned for yeah exactly. it's kind of his culture and red light district and everything else but you kind of branch out of that central part and you know all around those canals and everything it's beautiful isn't it's it? beautiful yeah so i think it's just a shift of focus it's a reframe and and you're out in the day and actually seeing these cities because their cities are totally different beasts by night and day, aren't they? And Agree, yeah. It's obviously nice to get out and actually walk around in the day and see monuments and architecture. And I think it's, yeah, it ends up being more inspiring. You know, there's more, uh, more goes into the songwriting file. Um, you Do you find yourself kind of feeling more, if that makes sense, like being aware and conscious of your emotions? Because when I had the two months off alcohol january february i found myself after a couple of weeks being really present and like alert and awake to the good and bad emotions yeah i think that that's true um there is some weird thing about the hangover that softens you up though and Mm -hmm. lots of creative stuff would happen the morning after for me maybe you're still kind of drunk and the guards down the gu- yeah you're kind of vulnerable I, and I do miss a little bit of that um there's, there's me right now things like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's weird things about that that i miss um but i think you miss all kinds of strange things uh you know you get nostalgic for all kinds of things that you don't necessarily want in your life but you still kind of miss them mm-hmm. you know it's like uh your old town you, you you miss it you're not necessarily going to go back there and, and live there but um again like i mean i'm i'm always trying to push forward it's like onward is that is that phrase that tomorrow not yesterday yeah kind of yeah that's that's more what i'm interested in is is and also sometimes to a fault you know being present i think as you said that's that's a goal it's hard um but if, if anything i'd rather err on the side of looking forward than backwards you know that's if if there is a if there's any wisdom in that i I don't know that's that's what i'm trying to to chase is is like on to the next thing you know i don't want to stay in a bad pattern Even though things are falling apart I know it's brutal working minimum wage It's like you finished before you start Things got ugly for a while back there I know I thought that you wouldn't pull through Late at night when the phone would ring There's no telling what you would do Today, I want to pick your brain about this I've been having right. a bit of an existential crisis, okay. Frank I'm at, a, <laughs> I'm at a crossroads in my life Right And I'm struggling with a few things My relationship being one Right and without sort of putting you on the pedestal of being an, uh, you know, a sage of wisdom, <laughs> I guess that you've, over the years, experienced many highs and lows that life has to offer. Very much so. And bled and poured it into your music. I was listening to the latest two albums on the way down and just kind of like going on a deep soul-searching quest, and your music right. is very good for that. Okay, well, thank you. Consciously, I guess, I mean, as well. I, I will, I will, I'm perfectly... I'm excited and happy to have this conversation, but it's funny, like... Quite because so my email address is public domain, so people email me all the time, and like quite a lot of the time, people sort of ask me for advice and stuff. And my instinctive reaction is always to go, 
I'm the worst person to ask. I haven't got anything figured out. That's why I keep writing songs about it, yeah. is it's my own sort of... There is a degree to which songwriting is a sort of public form of therapy for me, or at least has been. I mean, you know, uh, actually, it's funny. We're having this conversation here and now because I'm actually... this. The, I've made a lot of changes in my life this year myself and have... Not in a particularly public way, but I've just kind of managed to... Um, uh, kick some old habits finally and really settle myself down in a relationship and you know right on. I am feeling in quite a good place so great okay I can, I can so the dude that I spent the night with in Birmingham is perhaps a man of the past yes yeah that night well that, that kind of thing we we spent a wild night in Birmingham that ended up with me getting the train home the following day <laughs> because I was just out of my mind um, yeah, that kind of thing. I'm 35. I don't really need to be doing that when I'm 35. It gets to the two-day hangover, doesn't it? It does. Well, um, and I mean, I sort of realised, I, I had a moment of um, sort of honesty with myself where I just sort of wasn't really handling, and I really sort of hate this expression, but I'm going to use it, but partying. Yeah, yeah. I really wasn't handling it particularly well, and, and I was hurting, damaging my health, physical and mental and kind of damaging the people around me as well and just really I've had a lot of ups and downs with kind of um partying and substance abuse and that kind of thing and I really reached a point where it was like enough is enough um and I mean you know one might argue that it's early days which yeah. it is but for the first time and I mean this is this is the thing okay I am answering the question we are going somewhere no else. no dude um, there is no rush okay I I um I've done loads of stuff with groups like Calm, for example, yep. Campaign Against Living Miserably, who are a fantastic group, talk about kind of uh, masculinity and male suicide and that kind of thing. And one of the things that you always talk about with groups like Calm is that, you know, um, not being afraid to ask for help and that there's a sort of social stigma against admitting that you can't handle an issue on your own uh, and that that's something that we need to fight against, get rid of, because actually the world would be a much happier place if people weren't too macho to ask for help. And I'd, I've sort of talked that talk a lot over the years um, when being an ambassador for Calm or whatever and I had this moment of realising that I actually wasn't living up to that myself and that um, I could use a hand so I've, I've had a bit of counselling uh, stuff to help me make some changes in my life and it's been absolutely amazing it's been absolutely wonderful I can't recommend it highly enough um, and, and once I got over that initial kind of terror of like going for therapy it was like oh my god because you're exposed right and you're yeah, vulnerable well, and-, and also you know I was, I was raised First of all, I was raised in a socially conservative British household, and then I got into Henry Rollins. And the combination of those two things are not particularly conducive to the idea of asking other people for help. And um, and it's you know, so it was re- I was very scared, and I was kind of embarrassed on some levels about it at first. And I still, I'll be honest with you, there is a level on which um, I have to kind of push myself to talk about it. And, and I mean, that's not just because I'm embarrassed about it. It is also important for me to have a private life. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? This course. is me talking in a public capacity right now. Yeah. And um, I don't wish to have every aspect of my private life in the public domain. But but I think that if, you know, I, I, I want to the extent that anybody's paying attention to me or, God forbid, looking up to me in any way, you might as well then try and sort of share the good bits. Do you know what I mean? And like, I have to say that actually having finally walk the walk as well as talk the talk that going in for that kind of thing was was hugely um beneficial for me blacking in and out in a strange flat in east london somebody i don't really know just gave me something to help settle me down and to stop me from always thinking about you 
And you know your life is heading in a questionable direction When you're up for days of strangers and you can't remember anything Except the way you sounded when you told me you didn't know what I should do Well, there you go. Are you still here? Did you ride it out until the very end? If you're listening to this, it means that you did. Well done. That was a big old podcast, wasn't it? The longest one to date, but obviously it was 28 podcasts in one. And there'll be plenty more of that in the next few days. On Thursday, I'll be putting up part two, which will be episodes 31 to 60. And then next Monday will be part three, episode 61, up until the here and the now. Uh, And it'll be a full recap of the whole season so far. And then episode 100, I've got a little treat in store for you as we wrap this season and look ahead to season two. But I'm not going to tell you yet what that is. Uh, If you want to go back and find out who you just heard from, go to the show notes and you'll find the full list there. And then hopefully... That'll be inspiring for you to go back and check out some of the episodes in full. Uh, That was the goal, anyway, with making these compilations, was to uh, relive the best of the best and shine a light on some of the episodes which may have slipped through the net for whatever reason. Um, But thank you for listening, as always. Thank you for your continued support with this podcast. It has been a, a real grind to get it to where it is now. Not a hard grind. I've loved every moment, but it has been a slow and steady uphill battle And every single person who listens regularly to this show is, uh, well, you're one of the gang and I appreciate you and I'm very grateful for your support. So thank you very much. If you haven't already, do subscribe to the podcast as well on iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Then that way you can keep up to date with all the episodes as they're released. You should get a little notification every time a new episode pops up. And if you haven't already done this, if you could, that would be fantastic. Go to iTunes if you're on there. That's how you listen to podcasts. Get on the Apple Podcast app and leave the show a nice five-star rating and a short review. Now would be the perfect time to do that because you've heard some of the best of the best. So you can share some of your thoughts on there and, well, make me look good so that when people discover the podcast afresh, there's lots of nice reviews and ratings on there, um, which will hopefully inspire them in turn to get stuck in. That's it for me for now, though. I'll see you Thursday for some more highlights. Thank you very much for tuning in as always. And yeah, until next time, my friends. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.